This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Monday morning. It is May 15th here on the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. Joined here with Terry South as well as Reed Wolfley. And uh, we're the Apple Dumpling Gang, I guess, today. Um, which is interesting. Well, it has no connection with what I'm about to say. But today is National Chocolate Chip Day. Uh, in 1937, Ruth Graves Wakefield of Whitman, Massachusetts, must have been curious what a little bit of chocolate would add to her cookies. While working at the Toll House Inn, she added cut-up chunks of semi-sweet Nestle, uh, Nestle chocolate bar to a cookie recipe. The cookies were a huge success, and in 1939, Wakefield signed an agreement with Nestle to add her recipe to the chocolate bar's packaging. In exchange for the recipe, Wakefield received a lifetime supply of chocolate. Ooh, just like in uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. The Nestle brand Toll House cookies were named for the inn. Nestle initially included a small chopping tool with the chocolate bars. Starting in 1941, Nestle and other competitors started selling the chocolate in chip or morsel form. That's interesting that they included a a chopping tool with chocolate bars. I guess people didn't have knives back then. Interesting. Kind of makes me hungry. Want a chocolate chip cookie. Anyway, we've got a great show coming up for you. In just a minute here, we're going to be speaking with our Washington insider, Joe Cannon, our Joe in the know, as we like to call him. And man, what an eventful week it has been since we last spoke with Joe. So I'm sure he's going to have plenty to say here in just a bit. And also, we'll give you some empty news. And uh, later on in the show, we'll even speak with our uh, good friends at BYU Sports Nation. But first... Let's head over to Terry South and find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? The biggest cyber attack the world has ever seen is still claiming victims and threatens to create even more havoc this morning when people turn their computers on when they get to work. The attack is a virus that locks people out of their computers' uh, files until they pay a ransom to the hackers. Experts say the spread of the virus has been stymied by a security researcher in the U.K. I believe the story I read is the person... Saw the code, downloaded it, or made a $10 purchase of a domain name and was able to go in and just turn it off. Wow. Well, that Something wasn't bad. sort of that simple, but they said it'd be simple for the people who are actually running the virus to use another website and turn it back on. So, who knows? Hmm. But uh, a lot of it has to do with networks. So, if you're in a, a bigger business and your computers are all, you know, through a huge network system... It could just be sitting there waiting for you to turn your computer on, and then it'll tell you that you're locked out and you have to pay them thousands of dollars oh boy. to unlock it. And apparently, they're making money on it because there's really no way to unlock it. You can't. I mean, the only. I mean, other than just throwing the whole computer system out. That's Maybe the, we want to take another option. look at that. Maybe who knows? <laughs> but uh, so you got this virus. The attack was said to be unprecedented in its reach, with more than two hundred thousand victims in at least one hundred fifty countries. The ransomware called WannaCry because it makes you. Sure. Cry. Locks down your files on an infected computer, asks the computer administrator to pay an order to regain control of the system. The exploit was leaked last month as part of a trove of NSA spy tools. Someone got into that system, and now that's out on the market, so that, that should make you all feel comforted. Uh, organizations around the world spend the weekend trying to recover after being hit by the virus. Hospitals, major companies, government offices were among those 
hit. Uh, cybersecurity experts have said the majority of the attacks targeted Russia, Ukraine, and Taiwan, but UK hospitals had to shut down. They were calling people, telling them, telling them uh, you have a surgery scheduled for this morning. Just stay home. Oh. They're, they're on, they were using patent paper to function in the hospital because every computer was shut down. It was just, it was really bad for the. Oh, uh, man. It wasn't the, all the hospitals, but it was a good number of UK hospitals. Chinese universities, global firms like FedEx were also. Uh, they came under assault. The ransomware is spreading by taking advantage of a Windows vulnerability that Microsoft released a security patch for back in March. It's always Windows. People suspect that the NSA was using this. They, they, they found this little way they could get into the Microsoft system, right? The NSA did. But then they didn't tell anybody because they wanted hmm. to use it for a while. Then they tell Microsoft. Then Microsoft all of a sudden comes out with this patch in March. And a lot of IT administrators hold off on patching things because they don't know what it's going to do to their network. Yeah. So they haven't patched it yet, and then they hit this, you know, the virus kicks out, and it's ridiculous. Yeah. A lot of it has to do with the fact that a lot of companies still run Windows XP. Oh, no. And that isn't being covered. So Microsoft actually is going back. They're not supporting Windows XP with any sort of security updates. Now they're going back and making a security update for Windows XP users. Can you imagine how much worse things would be if it was Windows Vista? Yeah. <laughs> hopefully that, that is uh, That's a, like the punchline to, to all those jokes now. Windows so, Vista. Experts said Sunday it appears that the ransomware has made just over $32,000, although they expect that number to pop when people turn the computers on this morning. In other news, a Montana beekeeper has recovered hives that were stolen from him in California, thanks to what the AP is calling an agricultural sting. See what they did there. It's a bee. I, it's a I, I, I think I got that. Um, Lloyd Cuniff of uh, Montana reported 488 hives were stolen in January after he transported them to California for almond pollination season. A uh, tip led Fresno County authorities to find the stolen hives worth $170,000 in a rented bee nursery space. I didn't know there was such a thing. A cow pasture and hidden in a drainage along a freeway. Because that's where you put those things. Yeah. Fresno County detectives, member of the county's Agricultural Crimes Task Force, says there were 10 victims in seven ca- uh, California counties in all. Bee theft is, a, is new, kind of new to us also. This has been going on for about three years, they say. Um, so yeah, guy got most of his bees back. He says he's keeping the recovered hives in a separate field in case they are infected with disease or mites. Bee colonists, be afraid. Be very afraid. That was a sting, it said. And uh, 2017 <laughs> Mother's Day spending, right? This story would have been good on Friday, but I, I found it interesting reading it this morning. So they, they, I don't know what the actual numbers were, but they projected it would reach an all-time high, topping last year's splurge, which had also set a record, according to National Retail Federation. It was conducted, uh, before, obviously, shoppers for the holiday honor mothers are expected to spend an average of $186 each. Really? Yeah. So does that make me a bad husband since I didn't spend that much I, money? I don't know. I was asking my wife. <laughs> I, I wasn't go, even close to so that. So we got, well, it was like a gift card and there was a card and, wow, we didn't, we didn't get anywhere close <laughs> to the national average. Wow, that's interesting. I wonder if brunch, you know, you take hmm. your, if you take mom out to brunch, does that add, I mean, that adds to the cost. Of oh, the yeah. Space. I mean, you're, does that, I mean, I don't know how expensive that is, but I imagine they probably raise the prices because, you know, capitalism. Uh, so last year it was 172, so now it's up to 186. Total spending Sheesh. will hit 23 billion, up from 21 billion. To put that into perspective, they forecast that U.S. consumers would spend an average of 136 dollars on Valentine's Day. Oh my goodness! So more. So my question is, what's the hierarchy of holidays? 
Ooh. It depends on, you know, if the mother is also your significant other slash spouse. Because, I mean, you have like what? You have Christmas, you have anniversary, you have birthday, there's Mother's Day. Where does Mother's Day fall into that? It's not Christmas, is it? Is Christmas tops? Is Christmas number one? Is that where you spend the most money? I'm going to no? say it shouldn't be Mother's Day because we, you know, we want to make sure that every, every day is Mother's Day. Right, right, great. Okay, moving on. Let's get to the actual answer. That kind of stuff okay. you just say to cover yourself. Uh, yeah. um, What's the hierarchy of holidays? Because if you spend a huge chunk on Mother's Day and and Christmas is the hi- the higher holiday, do you need to spend more money to top your Mother's Day? Gift it's going to be Christmas because even if you say anniversary, yeah. the the big presents you're only getting like once every five ten years. Christmas you're spending consistently the same amount of money or more. You know, so I think it's Christmas. I don't know what the thinking is on this because if you, I, I knew um, a guy I used to work with bought his wife an iPad for mm-hmm. Mother's Day, but it wasn't just an iPad; it was the one with the uh, the, the, the mobile signal, right? Oh, so it's the there's two of them. You get the Wi-Fi only, then you yeah. get the Wi-Fi plus the mobile mobile internet, right? And so it was another hundred or so dollars. You're, you're getting almost to like a seven eight hundred dollar gift for Mother's Day. It's too much, and I'm like. So what do you do for Christmas at that point? You just can't roll in with a necklace. So what I've learned is that, you know, women don't really want that stuff. They just – my wife doesn't even want roses. Mm. She just wanted a massage. Of course, she's 39 weeks pregnant. So That was a – what do they say? And they said the increase in spending for Mother's Day, according to the – will be driven by 19% increase in jewelry purchases, 15% rise in personal services like spa trips, Mm -hmm. 36 – what's these? American uh, consumers said they plan to spend $5 billion on jewelry, which will be bought by 36% of shoppers, $4.2 billion on special outings such as dinner and brunch. There you go. Which over half of respondents said they will spend money on. So dinner and brunch. Seriously, it seems like I don't know. moms just want the sentimental stuff for Mother's Day. Like they want their kids to make them breakfast and right. bring them breakfast in bed. Yeah. Because, you know, that's the stuff that they remember anyway. So why are we spending all this money? If that's if, if, if <laughs> We're what you're trying saying to is buy true, memories, I guess. Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I just think maybe if Mother's Day is – is Mother's Day the second most important holiday when it comes to – you know, we didn't get your take on this. I don't know. I'm asking the question. <laughs> I was very, I was very confused today because you have, because like in my house, Valentine's Day and the anniversary are like really close. Interesting. They're, they're about a week apart, two weeks apart. So, oh, I see. So mm-hmm. we are, well, honestly, we kind of skip Valentine's Day. Or you just, you know, combine the two. Well, you can combine them if you want to do that. But usually we just, you know, the yeah, whatever. Our anniversary is the more important one of the two. So For sure. We start trying to figure that out. Then birthday and then you, you have Christmas and then all of a sudden Mother's Day is there. And where does all this fall in? And it seems like there's a lot of focus on Mother's Day as it's being spent more than Valentine's Day nationally. There's more well, money spent. So I don't know if that's... Where, where people's mindset is when it comes to where these holidays rank in importance. We know where Mr. T stands on this issue. What's that? Well, he made a song about mothers. Mother, there is no other like right. mother, so treat her right. Mm. Treat her right. And then he goes on to uh, you know use the acronym of mother to sing the rest of his song. It wasn't really singing. It was more just not even rapping. It was just Mr. T just talking. Just sort of talking. <laughs> 
There's no rhythm to it at all. And then the end of the music video has some random kid that says, be somebody. And it's like, that makes no sense. (laughs) Just random things they put together. You know, I did always, I've always felt sorry for people who have a birthday like right around Christmas, like my brother, Mm -hmm. because I think they get gypped on the gifts. They totally do. It says here, Americans spent $935 on average for Christmas. That's That's a lot. Everything including but not limited to gifts for others, spending on items for themselves, food, flowers, decorations, greeting cards for Christmas. So th- almost $1,000 versus, you know, 186 So I guess there the, – yeah. nothing compares to Christmas, but then you have like that descending order. And you can't get that wrong. You can't you – can't, if, if Valentine's Day is the most important – I guess it's the individual you're buying for, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I don't even think – I. That's how you guess what the importance is. I don't think wow. my wife minds me saying I don't. I don't even think I spend one hundred eighty dollars on my wife for Christmas. No, my wife gives me a budget. It's not that high. Yeah, she goes, "Don't not spend more than this," and then I'll spend something. We, it's always, you know, we always set a budget, and then we just get too excited and go beyond that. What I hate is when when you're really trying to do something nice, but you don't know what to do, so you ask the person, and they say, "I don't know," hmm. and they're just like. So you're getting a gift card, and then you're going to be disappointed when I hand you this gift card, <laughs> but you've given me no choice because I have no idea what to get you. See, I married into my wife's family where if it's on your list, you're getting everything on the list. So there's no oh. element of surprise. I mean, within reason. Oh, okay. I, I still haven't gotten the ping pong table that I've been asking for. Well, you know, next, always next year. <laughs> Just keep hope alive. All right. Well... If you didn't spend $180 on your mother or your wife on Mother's Day, you know, you're not the worst person in the world. And uh, in fact, do maybe do something like I did and, and give your wife a memory instead of a, an $800 iPad. I think that's what's going to mean more to her. Anyway, not too late to honor your mother slash spouse. In fact, each and every day should be mother's slash spouse day. So go out and do something nice for them again today. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll be speaking with our Washington insider, Joe Cannon. When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. And uh, we're speaking this morning, as we do every Monday morning, with our good friend Joe Cannon, our Washington insider. He's also the CEO of Fuel Freedom Foundation, and uh, you can find that at fuelfreedom.org. Joe Cannon, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks a lot. Joe, this is so crazy. It seems like every time we talk... A day or two after we talk, something crazy happens, and there's just a crazy week, and we have to wait an entire week before we get to have your take on it. (laughs) And this week is no exception. So, obviously, we want to talk to you about uh, the firing of of James Comey, and I'm looking here at at this this recent poll. Nearly 80% of Americans want a special prosecutor to investigate Trump's Russia ties that those are staggering numbers. They are no, that's um, 
No, you're right. It was a very interesting week. And I happened to be in Washington last week, so I sort of saw a lot of it unfold and and actually had some conversations with some folks in the White House. You were on the battleground. They weren't they weren't <laughs> leaking. I just want to be clear. You know, that's one of the big what it's a side story here, but uh I I think no one in history has seen a White House that leaks as much as this White House does. And you'd think it'd be the opposite. Uh, under a, uh, a President Trump, you'd think that he'd have more loyal people around him, but apparently these leaks are going like crazy. Yeah, but but yeah, it was uh, yeah people waking up Tuesday morning uh, could not have expected what was going to happen the next few days. Joe, should we be all that surprised? I mean, from coming from a president that has placed so much emphasis on social media. Or should we be that surprised that James Comey found out while he was watching television that he had been fired? Right. Uh, well, there are, a lot, there are many surprise, in quotes, elements about the firing. And uh, so to, to start with, I think, let's just take one principle to start with, and that is the president could fire anybody who serves at the pleasure of the president. Sure. Which is, so, so as far as the legalities of firing him go, that, uh, that's really not an issue. I don't think anybody's really contesting that. But the question is uh, the when, the how, and the why, all, all of which were kind of confused by missignals, mis, mis uh by the president and missed signals by his staff. I mean, so it's a, uh, and I think this goes back to the big surprise. I think Trump was genuinely surprised at the overwhelming, the unanimous negative opposition from the Democrats. I mean, here you do have a little bit of an irony, you know, within days before, and of course, several days, weeks, and months before, uh, Comey was the subject of villainy. Uh, on the Democratic side of things. He cost Hillary the election, according to her and according to a lot of other people. Right. It's his fault that she lost. Uh, you can, there are numerous statements on the record by Schumer and Durbin and lots of other people that just killing Comey. So I think uh, the Washington Post had a really clever, uh, in one of its, it's got a political gossip section. The, uh, the headline was, Democrats hate Comey, but they hate Trump's firing of Comey more. And I think that that says a lot, because what it did was it galvanized them around an issue where they think uh, Trump is vulnerable. That is the the Russian connection, the Russian investigation. So I, but getting back to the surprise, I think Trump genuinely, I I mean, I'm just an outsider in this, but kind of looking at his reaction and some of the things he said, I think he was very surprised at the Democrat reaction. Um, now then, of course, what's the fallout of that? So he's now blaming, there, there are a bunch of stories out there now that he's going to considering a staff shakeup because he felt like he was ill-served, not by what his staff said, and I'll come back to that in a minute, but, but they, they, in his mind, they should have prepared him more for this negative reaction. So by him not being prepared, and I think there's some truth in this, you did have this inconsistent um, messaging from the White House. You had every single Trump uh, 
spokesperson, uh, uh, surrogate type person from Vice President Pence to everybody else, basically saying, oh, he fired him because of the memo by the deputy um, attorney general. And then, and then there's this huge backlash. So Trump comes out, in my mind, completely undercutting his fat folks, saying, no, 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 I decided I was going to fire him a long time ago. The memo was just kind of an afterthought. So I think what you had here was the president thinking he was doing damage control. Uh, and when, it, when, in fact, it, it created a lot more damage by undermining his, uh, his uh, spokes folks, spokespeople. Right. Uh, so it, it seems like, you know, getting back to the, to the Democrats, they, like you said, they, they saw Comey as this villain, and now all of a sudden he's this martyr. And I wonder if it's because as time went by, they, now, they began to see Comey, especially when talks of the Russian investigation were underway, they saw him as the next line of attack against Trump. And then they took oh, that away do, from yeah, them. No, yeah. no, I do think that. I think uh, in the mind of many Democrats, maybe all, I don't know, but the firing of Comey was an attempt to interfere in the Russia investigation. Yeah. Now, I, I personally don't think that there's anything to that. I, I, I could be wrong, way wrong, but I think... Uh, I don't think Trump was thinking that far ahead. I think he was thinking, gosh, Comey's just, you know, not going to be my guy there. And for all kinds of reasons, maybe he wasn't going to be loyal enough, whatever that means. Uh, maybe it was a little bit of the, of the Russia investigation, but that is going on at many different levels by many different uh, folks, both in the department of justice at the FBI and on the Hill. Um, so I, I I, my personal view is that it didn't have a lot to do with that, and I would register another view. Unlike many of your listeners, I have total recollection of the Watergate days, um, and this is not Watergate. I think you know, there was a kind of a, an attempt, a nascent attempt on the part of some Democrats, and still going, to say, well, this is Watergate. This is the firing of Archibald Cox. Yeah. Uh, now, maybe your listeners don't even know that's a long, long time ago in the 70s. <laughs> But Archibald Cox is a special prosecutor, and he was prosecuting, investigating President Nixon. He demanded the tapes, and there are other things besides that. And Nixon wanted to fire him. And that, that would have only been, he only had one job, and that was to investigate Nixon. So he called Nixon, calls up the uh, uh, attorney general, a guy named Elliot Richardson, and says, I want you to fire that guy. And Elliot Richardson said no, then he resigned. Then he went down. I think the deputy was a guy named Richard Kleindienst from Arizona. He declined. Then the next guy was the head of the FBI at the time, a guy named Bill Ruckelshaus, who, for whom I worked and, and got a lot of the inside story of what happened from Bill. And at the end of the day, this uh, I'm, I'm starting to labor this, but it has a very interesting uh, uh, political reverberations because the guy who did fire Archibald Cox was a guy named Robert H. Bork, Jr., who I think was the Assistant Attorney General for the Office of Legal Counsel. And it turns out he was implored by Richardson, Ruckelshaus, and others to do the firing so that he would resign, so there'd be at least some kind of, in their minds, normal person left at the Department of Justice. Why that is kind of plays, played itself out is when Bork so 
uh, Archibald Cox was the special friend of a guy named Ted Kennedy, who was chairman of the Judiciary Committee when Bork comes up for nomination to the Supreme Court. So there was a lot around the Bork case. But I don't mean to dwell on that, but that was a huge miasma, a big problem. Uh, and I don't think, I'm not even sure President Trump is aware of this whole Watergate history, but he not only put it in play by firing a guy and specifically mentioning the Russia investigation, but even more mentioning tapes. I hope you don't, I hope you understand that these, you know, what are you saying? I guess he said, you better hope there aren't tapes of this conversation. Well, tapes yeah. were, that, that word was at the center uh, of the Watergate controversy. So knowingly or unknowingly, uh, President Trump backs into this whole Watergate uh, era nightmare and gives the Democrats plenty of ammunition by the words that he used and, the, and, and how he approached firing the director of the FBI. I mean, that was a long discourse, but there's no, a no, lot no. of history I... behind this, and a lot of that informs the, the current debate. No, I think that's. I think it's important to get that background, and thanks for sharing that. Because yeah, I, a lot of people out there are saying that this is obstruction of justice. So it is interesting to get that, um, you know, to get that comparison. Well, we see. I don't know when the break comes. We still need to talk about what happens next because I think that will go a long way to to illuminating the issue of whether it was obstruction of justice or not. Well, let's talk about that. We've got time for that. Okay, okay. Well, so, first of all, I don't think it was obstruction of justice, but I don't know. By firing the FBI director, that actually doesn't change any of what's going on with the investigation itself. And, in fact, the, uh, the president is looking at a bunch of very interesting people to be the... Uh, to, to take up the position um, of the FBI director. So last weekend, it's like at least eight people were interviewed. And I think it's fair to say that almost all eight of those people, uh, if not inspire confidence, would, would show that, that, you know, that uh, the president is serious about getting a real person in. Uh, so some of those people, there's a, a former Michigan, uh, he's a Republican congressman, the um, same as Mike Rogers, but but what Mike Rogers is a, was a former FBI agent. He was chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. He was a CNN national security commentator. The FBI Agents Association has endorsed him. So I mean, you've got that. That, for example, now I don't know who it's going to be, but that's an example of somebody. Another person on the list is John Cornyn, Senator John Cornyn. I think is very widely regarded on both sides of the aisle as, as an honest broker. He's got two federal judges on the list. Both of them have, have a strong uh, history. Uh, he's got um, a, a person on the list named Alice Fisher, who uh, was the former assistant attorney general in the Bush administration uh, for the criminal uh, this, she was assistant attorney general for the criminal division. So you've got, I, I don't want to go through all of them, but you've got a set of people, most of whom would be uh, pretty well regarded. Um, so uh, I, I think the other shoe to drop is who he chooses here, and that can make, that can make a big difference.
Yeah. So, Joe, in your opinion, I mean, is a is an investigation led by Congress, is that enough, or does it need to be a, a special prosecutor? Boy, I personally don't like the special prosecutor, not, not, not connected to this case, but there's a reason. There used to be a special prosecutor statute. Again, going back to our history, after Archibald Cox was fired, then there were calls, okay, what we really need is an independent prosecutor, somebody appointed, and it turns out appointed by the courts, who is independent of the president and independent of Congress and independent even of the Justice Department, even though that person would connect. But then there's been a whole history of huge prosecutorial um you know, mismanagement, uh, spending a lot of money. And so bipartisan Democrats and Republicans both uh, uh, repealed the special prosecutor statute because of these kind of problems that you get when you get somebody just on a huge fishing expedition. Uh, no one knows where it's going to go. No one knows what crimes. And anyway, so at the end of the day, uh, most Republicans and Democrats in principle don't like the idea of an independent prosecutor. Now, in this particular case, the Democrats are coming back very strong, saying we need that uh, because we can't trust the Justice Department or Congress. Still, going the special prosecutor route is a, is a nightmare. But the, by the way, the prosecutor is supposed to prosecute crimes that's inherent in the designation of a special prosecutor. And so far, there's no crime alleged here. And a lot of commentators over the weekend, mostly, well, all from the, the right side of the spectrum, were saying, well, wait, with all the leaks, with all the massive leaks from the White House, from the, from Congress, from the, even the Department of Justice, no one has yet leaked any actual information that uh, looks like there's an indictable offense. Now, who knows? There's, there's so much going on, we don't know. But I would say let the process take its course right now. Let's see who the new FBI director is. Let's see how the how the investigation goes. Um, and see see what happens before you go the special prosecutor route. Yeah. Well, Joe, let's do this. Let's take a break, and uh, we'll come back and continue the conversation. We're speaking with Joe Cannon. He's our Washington insider, and uh, he's shedding some more light on, oh, this very eventful week that we've had in politics. So we'll take a break. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion with Joe Cannon here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We're speaking with Joe Cannon, who uh, shed some light on the firing of James Comey and and actually gave us a a great comparison to Watergate. He feels that people are (laughs) not doing uh, a a good job by uh, comparing this whole fiasco to Watergate. But uh, Joe Cannon, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Yeah, I I don't think this is Watergate, but I do think there are lots of of uh, hints, you know, uh, supposedly Mark Twain, although nobody's ever figured out who said this, but uh, but it's attributed to Mark Twain. Uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. 
<laughs> and there, on the Democrat side of things, anyway, there's a lot of rhyming going on here. Yeah, with the uh, with uh, Watergate. So. so I wanted to talk about this, Joe. Where you know this was just days after the firing of Comey, Trump uh, makes a video that's shown at the you know to the RNC, and he's optimistic about the 2018 midterm elections, um, and yet. Pretty much everybody else is thinking that things will not go as well as he's saying. Right. Yeah. Well, the particular event that that video was shown at was based based on the Republican National Committee spring meeting in Coronado, California, and you know where they get together, you know, the people out on the committee, but analysts and uh, pollsters and. You know, people really kind of smart about it. Elections get together, and that was manifestly not the feeling of people in Coronado, California, last week. Uh, uh, they've they've got the House has plenty. Of, we should talk about the House and the Senate separately because they're well, they're different in a lot of ways. But one of the ways they're different is that uh, the House is more subject to what are called wave elections. So in other words, where where an issue or a set of issues take over. Um, but, you know, and just let's start with a, a fundamental political fact. 15 out of the last uh, 17 congressional elections, the president has lost. So, you know, the, whoever the president is has lost seats in the House. And in this case, so... What seemed like a huge, you know, impenetrable, impenetrable majority, but now it's looking not, not so impenetrable. The Democrats need to pick up 24 seats to take back control. And just to give one data point on that, 20 House Republicans voted against changing the Affordable uh, the American Health Care Act or Obamacare. Yeah, wow. Boy, that means 20. It's still passed by a couple of votes, but what that meant is there are 20 Republicans out there who were nervous about their own election and wanted to be on record as voting against this change. And and by the way, the whole Obamacare change isn't polling very well at all. So you, you've got, before Comey, you had this um, one commentator called it the Democrat cudgel against the, the Republicans is the, the health care vote. So that was already out there. And then on top of that, you have the firing of Comey. And the, as you pointed out earlier, the tremendous popular uh, resentment against that. you got a lot of House members very, very, very nervous uh, coming up to this election. So I don't know how how to predict that, but but uh, unless something changes in the next year, unless President Trump gets more popular um, among his base, so he's got to keep his base, but he's got to expand that base to independence. Sure. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to. Is this kind of like a, a sleight of hand move by President Trump? I feel like that's what Matt Townsend has talked about on the show before. Just you know, before we can get too heated around, you know, a particular argument or, or case, it seems like Trump's moved on to something else to d- distract our attention from this other thing that he doesn't want us to pay too much attention to. 
Well, uh, that could be a tactic that he has, and, and Matt, Matt believes that, and a lot, of, a lot of people believe that. But I don't think he fired Comey as a distraction. I think he didn't expect the intensity of the reaction from the Comey, the, the fallout from the Comey firing has been you know, deeper and broader, I think, than President Trump thought. So I, I don't know. Uh, he got elected, and no one thought he could get elected. So I, I don't want to underestimate what his political skill is. But I, I think the, the affordable, the, the, the Health Care Act and the firing of Comey are two pretty big, big problems going forward, and his approval rating. So you look at uh, all of the pundits look at, uh, so where's the president's approval rating and how does that affect things? Well, if miraculously, uh, so right now his approval rating average is, is around 40, which has come up from the 30s, but it's still pretty low. Um, if you do, well, just maybe if I could take just a minute. Sure. Uh, a couple of really smart guys have done a uh, an analysis. These are guys that uh, formerly were with uh, Real Clear Politics, but they've done a very elaborate simulation of the Senate. So let's just talk about the Senate. But right now it's 52-48. If the, and, and you've got eight, eight senators out in red states, states that went for uh, Trump. So you'd think that in a normal year you'd expect uh, that to be a number of those seats to uh, to become Republican. Well, if President Trump's approval rating remains where it is today, their simulation, which has many variables, and then they run it with many variables thousands of times, but the key variable turns out to be presidential approval rating. So if President Trump's rating is 40%, the Senate stays just how it is. Notwithstanding, this is the biggest opportunity in modern history for Republicans to pick up seats. If uh, uh, the president's approval rating goes to 45%, then it looks like it, in their simulation it's 54 Republicans and 46 Democrats, so a pickup of two. If for some reason the approval rating gets to 50, then he wins, then the Senate picks up uh, four seats, so 56-44, which is pretty substantial. But all of that is dependent on his approval rating. Um, it's, and I think uh, something else is at play here. The Wall Street Journal had a, had a piece this morning called The Canary in the Coal Mine. In other words, uh, maybe people are familiar with that. In coal mines, you have a canary. If the canary dies, that means there's you know, the gases in there that are right. fatal to miners. Okay. So the... the, um, set, the Sorry, Congress in general exercised the Congressional Review Act 13 times, more times, vastly, vastly more times than any time in history, to repeal Obama regulations. But the last one, there was a, 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 um, a uh, an attempt to eliminate a rule by the Bureau of Land Management. It sounds very boring, but it has a big, big, big impact called the methane rule. So to roll back this methane rule, I don't want to talk about the rule itself. It has, it does have issues, but it failed. It was brought to a vote in the Senate and it failed. Three Republican senators voted against it. Susan Collins, uh, 
uh, Senator Graham and Senator McCain all voted against it. And every and every Democrat voted against it, including every one of those Democrats in a red state, in a Trump state. So these are from, from uh, in particular, Heidi Heitkamp and, uh, and Joe Manchin. They are from energy states, Manchin from a coal state and Heitkamp from a, an oil and gas state. And they all voted against this with impunity. And I think what this shows is, uh, uh, you know, the, the elected officials are starting to steer a course away from Trump. And so we'll see how that that goes and if they're if the house is is effective but in the senate that was uh, i think uh, the, the wall street journal got it right it's a canary in the coal mine yeah well joe just as we finish up here and again we appreciate your time here every monday with us on the matt townsend show i'm just curious you know i said at the beginning of the interview it seems like, you know, something monumental happens the day after we speak with you on the program, and then we have to wait an entire week to, to speak with you about that topic. What do you see coming up in the next few weeks that we're going to be talking about on the show? Well, I think we'll be talking, I, th- I think we could be talking next week about who the new FBI director is right. and what ramifications that has. I think he apparently wants to get that done. This week now, whether that can happen or not, I I don't know. That'd be operating pretty quickly, but uh, so that's one. The other big thing is he's going to is taking off on his on his first big international trip. He's going to be in Saudi Arabia and Israel. I'm not sure where else he's going, but I know he's going to those two places. Um, look for a look for a big announcement in Saudi Arabia. Uh, I think that will be that will have significant implications, and that that because. Regardless of what you feel about President Obama taking him at his own word, he wanted to shift the whole Middle East uh, political calculus, political balance, away from Saudi Arabia and to Iran. And that explains many of his actions. So you look at the two axes, the big, big power bases, uh, Obama wanted to shift it in Iran's direction. And it's very clear that Trump didn't like that. He, he not only didn't like the Iran Treaty, but lots of the other uh, things that went along went, went along with that. So he, look, look next week for him to be redressing that by making some significant announcement in Saudi Arabia. And then, of course, he's going to Israel. And uh, it was very interesting. There's still, uh, you know, the guy, the ambassador to Israel, who is a very strong proponent of moving the uh, embassy from, Jeruz- or from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, you've got the State Department, as it has in every administration, Republican and Democrat, opposed that. I mean, even Clinton talked about moving, uh, Bill Clinton talked about moving the, uh, the embassy to Jerusalem. And in every case, the State Department won that argument, and nobody moved it. So I would look for an announcement uh, in Israel on that, on that subject, where they're going to put the embassy, and then also, uh, uh, I don't think there's any surprise, but there's going to be a strong reinforcement about Israel's role and about America's support of Israel going forward. But I think it'll be very interesting what he says in Saudi Arabia. I, I think we'll have a pretty big announcement there. 
Well, Joe, we look forward to uh, speaking with you again next week. I'm sure we're going to have a lot to talk about. His name is Joe Cannon. He's been speaking with us about uh, the firing of James Comey, the director of the FBI, as well as the, uh, the 2018 midterm elections. No shortage of things to talk about here with Joe Cannon on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll continue the, def- we'll continue the fun and the discussion here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We just uh, had an interesting conversation with Joe Cannon, our Washington insider. And now we're going to have an interesting conversation with Terry South. The Social Security Administration released its official list of the most popular baby names of 2016. Ooh, I'm interested. We're about to name a baby ourselves. Right. So girls, the top names are Emma, Olivia, Ava, Sophia, and Isabel. That's the top five. We've got a Sophia. Do you? Oh, yeah. She's our five-year-old. And in boys, the top uh, five names, Noah, Liam, William, and Mason. My middle name is Liam. Uh, so, yeah. So, Noah. Usually there's something that motivates people. Like during, you know, during the um, – there's certain movies or certain actors or certain events. Sure. And people see a name. They like the name. So yeah. they, you know. Elsa when Frozen was out. Right. Yeah. And so, Noah – Mm-hmm. What event? I mean, it's biblical. I've read several things that it's not biblical. It's the mo- the motivation behind it isn't biblical because it's not like we found out something new about Noah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the what's the motivation behind Noah? Is there an actor I'm missing? Is there there's a character or something? You you, you follow movies closer than I do. Any and of the actors? Any of the actors that I know with Noah are not like megastars, right? I know Noah so, Wiley is an actor, right? But he's yeah. not a huge star. He's more no. of a also ran kind of thing. He's a yeah. secondary actor. Unless you're on TNT and then he stopped Aliens for a while. But that was a different show. <laughs> was that Falling Skies yeah. or something like that? Okay. I got sucked into that. It's, it's, it's horrible, <laughs> but I watched it. It was interesting. I don't know. May, I mean, so you're saying maybe it's not people are, you know, having – there's not like this upcharge of faith that's going on. It, the, the, that was the the articles didn't indicate anything specific that okay. Noah, you know. Okay. And if not, if why wouldn't Noah have a surge in the past? It's not like he's a new concept, right? Noah, well, I mean, there's also this idea that we run out of ideas, and so we kind of just circle back to the older names. Right. And yeah, but again, less people going to church is what all the the polls keep showing. So why would people, you know? try to bring something that they're yeah. apparently not interested in into their lives in their hmm. child's name, but maybe they just like the name. Who knows? Huh. You know, my wife uh, named our, our boy Jacob, and that had nothing to do with the Twilight series, but it was just at the height when she named it. So that name was, like, super popular. And so and everyone it, kept accusing her of, so you're on, like, Team Jacob or whatever. I, I get, <laughs> I'm not sure how that even worked. But it also didn't have anything to do with the Bible? No, she okay. just liked the name. All right. Even though when I point that out, she was like – and then I saw some reports that Michael – Michael has dropped to the eighth most popular baby name. And it, really? has been, it has been one of the most popular names for the last 40 years. I'm surprised that it's still that popular because yeah. it's one of the most common names you'll ever hear. Absolutely. So later on, I will share uh, where our names fall on the list because the Social okay. Security Administration has a database you can search yeah. to see how your name has trended over time. Well, I can say so. the two names that we're considering for our baby boy are not common. 
They're not going to be on this list, I don't think. Okay. Yeah. They're not like Ethan or Elijah? Nope. Okay, because nope. those are on the list, too. Nope. Not, uh, not going to be on the list, I'm guessing. All right, so I guess we'll find out. Okay. When you decide what to name your your child. Thanks Ho- for holding us in don't suspense. Mess it up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll take a break. When we come back, uh, we'll find out what are some more popular baby names when we return. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Monday morning. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, We are once again Dr. Mattless, but that's okay. We've got a great show ahead of us. We're celebrating National Chocolate Chip Day. And uh, maybe you gave some chocolate chip cookies to your mother or spouse yesterday. Uh, Hopefully you treated them right. And hopefully you treat them right every day because we don't have to relegate all of our kind acts to our mothers and our spouses to one day. Um, And uh, we've got some great stories coming up on the show, including one involving a mother and one man stealing his mother's stew. That's interesting. Kind of a bizarre crime, if you could call it that. And uh, we'll also have a story about possums or opossums, if you will. Terry, which do you prefer? I always feel awkward with the opossums. Oh, for sure. Yeah. You feel Irish. I feel like I'm mispronouncing <laughs> the word, but possum, I think, is a uh, a good way to make sure everyone's on the same page with sure. what you're trying to talk about. But the, the, actual, the actual name for it is opossum, right? Right. Okay. All right. We're also going to be discussing popular baby names and uh, some of the formerly popular names that are being knocked down a few tiers. And again, I'm confident that the names on the list are not going to be the names that we're considering for my child that's about to be born. Uh, We will also be uh, replaying an interview about growing healthy kids with food straight from soil. That'll be an interesting interview that uh, Matt Townsend uh, conducted, as well as some more empty news. And, of course, to top it all off, a discussion with our friends at BYU Sports Nation. But before we do any of that, Terry, let's head over to you and get a little taste of what's going on around the rest of the country. What's up? OPEC. They're the oil producing... Is that PEC uh, or OPEC? OPEC. They're the the (laughs) consortium of countries that produce oil. Yes. So they all sit on councils and they uh, decide how much they're going to charge and how much we're going to produce. And they put out a a favor of other... has to favor of major oil producers across the world. Please stop pumping so much and help us balance out the market. The unusual plea was issued Thursday in the cartel's closely watched monthly report, which found that global markets are still suffering from too much supply. OPEC said that one producer in particular is to blame, the United States, Ah. where shale producers have continued to ramp up their drilling despite lower crude oil prices. The increased production has undermined OPEC's efforts to keep prices between $50 and $60 a barrel. OPEC and allied producers agreed in November to slash production, a move designed to to rid global markets of excess supply. For a while, the strategy appeared to be working, with prices drifting north of $54 a barrel earlier this year. Now, the magic appears to be wearing off. The cartel has responded to the sharp decline in prices by suggesting that the agreement 
would be extended far beyond its original mid-year deadline, but that won't help OPEC solve its America problem. The U.S. did not join its agreement, and the number of rigs in operation in the U.S. has doubled over the past year. The cartel has in the past fought fiercely for its market share. Starting in 2014, it pumped relentlessly in order to squeeze higher-cost American producers. The strategy pushed prices well below $30 a barrel and forced many U.S. producers to scale back in 2015 and 2016. Remember those days? When the gas prices were closer to two dollars a gallon, loved it. Not like now, where they're about two thirty, sometimes two fifty, depending on where you're buying your it's oil, horrible. your gas. And so, <laughs> what they're complaining about is they're trying to keep prices high, but prices keep going lower. Yeah, right. So, as a consumer, you're like on the opposite end of this. You're like, I don't agree with anything they're trying to do. I want the prices to go as low as possible. Of course, they're trying to keep their business afloat. That's of what you know. That's what they're. So they're looking at the U.S. and saying, slow down because you're putting too much on the market, so we have to the prices keep dropping. And the U.S. is like, uh, no, because we're looking uh, to possibly you know, not depend on the rest of the world for our oil because then that informs our politics and yeah. everything we do. Yeah. It's just better to be independent. So uh, they, they tried to squeeze out the shale oil producers, which are uh, you know, pumping out the oil here in the U.S., but it has a disastrous effect on the government budgets of OPEC members. These countries, their entire federal budget, the entire budget of these countries run off the oil that they sell, right? Where in the U.S., it's one of many industries there. Yeah. It's the only one. So when the price drops, they stop building roads. Yeah. Right? Oh, my goodness. Tax, the, the whole money they use to run the country disappears overnight. Yeah. And so they're really concerned about this where the U.S. is like, eh, Man. we're okay. Yeah. So these co- – and so they, they – they, in 2014, they tried to squeeze the shale producers by – uh, putting so much oil on the market, it made it too expensive to pump oil out of the shale, which yeah. is a whole chemical reaction thing that's difficult to do. But those shale producers have found ways to streamline their operations and make it more economical. So they're like, go ahead. We can see the prices drop to $40 a barrel, and we're still going to be able to produce and be profitable. So go ahead. Try to do what you can and yeah. ruin your countries trying to compete with us over here. Sheesh. So it's a whole thing. But uh, the real story is... Apparently, the U.S. is becoming even more energy independent away from other countries, and so maybe we don't get into wars on the other side of the planet. Yeah. It's quite as often. You know, 230 is not that bad no. for a gallon of gas. And I loved, I loved it when it was closer to two. Sure. But 230, I think we're okay. We can live with that. When it pops up to four, that's when you start like, wait a second. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start riding you know, bikes to work. That would take me about... 40 days, but yes. I'd get there at some point. <laughs> it took Amazon 18 years as a public company to catch Walmart in the market value. It took less than two years for Amazon to be worth twice as much. So 18 wow. years to catch Walmart, two years to double Walmart. Oh my goodness. Market value. Now it's not like, it says on the 20th anniversary of Amazon's uh, IPO, Amazon market cap stands at $459 billion before the market's open for today. Walmart is at $228 billion. Right mm-hmm. now, that's not how much money they make a year. That's what the um, that's what Wall Street says they're worth. Yeah. All right. So they're yeah. looking at that money. Yeah. So uh, Walmart has well more than three times Amazon's annual revenue. So Walmart makes three times more of the money than Amazon does. But Wall Street looks at what Amazon is doing and they like that better, so they buy more of those shares. Sure, that makes sense. Um, so can I ju- can yeah, I just ahead. say something? Yeah. Go ahead with your two-day shipping that doesn't happen to your house complaint. As much as I complain about Amazon not really having two-day shipping, I much prefer their shipping methods over Walmart's methods. 
Walmart takes like a week or two weeks. Right. And, you know, Amazon doesn't take two days, but it doesn't take two weeks. So with the freedom of Walmart, Wall Street looking at you favorably, Amazon has taken that freedom and continued to consistently grow its revenue north of 20% a year while pumping cash into big new businesses like they, uh, they, they, did, they run Amazon Web Services, mm-hmm. right, which is they, they run the servers for like Netflix. Yeah. Netflix tosses all their movies and they, they put it on Amazon servers, and that's how that service functions, right? Now, granted, huh. they've had some outages recently, and people are going nuts because they can't watch Netflix, so that means they have to talk to their family or something. I mean, they have to have conversations. <laughs> have to read a what book. are we doing here? So that Amazon has this crazy – this Amazon Web Services company, which is estimate already worth $160 billion. Wow. Right? And they just went, well, hold on. We're running an internet company. We have web server space. Let's see if we can make a company out of this. And now it's worth $160 billion. Hmm. And uh, then uh, there's more uh, innovation coming with the Alexa voice platform. Uh-huh. They're finding a lot of uh, interest in that. They think that's the next, the next big business for Amazon is licensing Alexa into, say, your toaster. So you can literally talk to your toaster because we need that in our, our day-to-day lives. See, we don't need super cheap gas, but we need Alexa in our toaster. We absolutely do. But Alexa's showing up in cars. Alexa's showing up in all sorts of different items now. Wow. Uh, Downton Abbey. It's the much-loved PBS Masterpiece Classic officially coming back as a movie. No. So I don't know if PBS will run that or if it's like a theater issue, but they're already filming pieces of this. It's going to be a Fathom event that nobody ever goes to. <laughs> I don't one know anybody night. that's ever gone to yeah, one. No, one night only, yeah. The series ended <laughs> two years ago after a six-season run, and now they'll do a movie and try to wrap it up. Julian Fellows is the writer, and she said she had a script written before actually, the show was it's over. It's actually a man. We were is just talking a, about names. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That would yeah Julian obviously okay, um, so they hope the series will work. Some of the uh, cast members are like seriously, what more can you mine out of this that someone would want to watch on TV? Well, so. and I mean we watched every episode of it, and really the last episode was just let's wrap up every storyline that we've been had that we've been having on the show over the course of six years. They really did so. Yeah, it is like what else well, do we have to say? Could you do? Yeah. yeah. So. And uh, finally, just three months after their wedding, a tornado destroyed Ariel and Justin Duke's uh, Canton, Texas home. Their personal items were lost in the debris that stretched for miles. Ariel's wedding and engagement rings were among the missing objects. And after a search for eight days, the Dukes made a final plea online, posting a photo of the rings and asking anyone who might come across them to please return them back to her. Oh, Nathan man. Wright, a hobby metal detector. A hobby metal detector? Is that? I, I guess he's a guy that runs around with the metal detector. He's got the headphones on and just <laughs> yeah, one of those guys. Saw a photo and joined the search. He goes, it's pretty hard to detect somewhere like that because there's so much debris after the uh, the tornado. Their place wasn't even recognizable that a house was even there. It was just broken wood, debris scattered all over about 100 yards. After three hours and doing some heavy praying, right found Ariel's engagement rings. And then it was no. th- 30 feet away, her wedding band. It was unreal where he said... Uh, Ariel screamed and bulldozed into me with a big hug. So she found her rings. That's pretty impressive. I know we always make fun of the, well, we, we, is make fun of the right word. We make observations about people that go around with metal detectors Society and fanny packs. Society makes judgments. Society judges yeah. people and we <laughs> tend to join in at times. Yes. Go ahead. Oh, it just seems like it's more effective to look under the couch than down at the beach. But seeing as, yeah, but I mean, what are you going to do? If you have time to kill, why not go search around for people's lost items? Good for him. Yeah. See, that that could have been our hero story of the day. Could have been. 
Because that guy's a hero to this woman, for sure. Wow. But he didn't need to go do that, but he wouldn't have helped. Yeah. Just stepped in, helped, ran around for a couple hours, and found both rings. Strapped on that fanny pack and got to work. <laughs> See the stereotype. What are you doing? No, I, I'm sure you mentioned a fanny pack in absolutely, there somewhere. Absolutely. So um, did you treat your mother right yesterday? Uh, Saturday. Saturday. Yeah. You guys, okay. Uh, As you said, Mother's Day isn't locked on to one day. Sure. Do you know the origins of Mother's Day? Does it have anything to do with mothers? No. Okay. It has to do with selling greeting cards, so. Oh, I see where we're going with this. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, there's a whole thing involved, but it's been kept going because people want to sell greeting cards. And they want to have these these quarterly holidays to keep the budgets up. So whatever. You get beyond all that. And yeah, so Saturday we all gathered and had an event for my mom. See, I didn't get a card for my mom or my wife. I called my mom and I ripped out a piece of lined paper and wrote on that. I usually skip the greeting card because it's not – I mean I didn't make it. Yeah. And it's just some something I read in the grocery store aisle. I was like, oh, that's funny. We'll send that That sounds like something I would say. Yeah. Um, well, hopefully you didn't take anything from your mom. No. A New Mexico man arrested for breaking into his mom's house to steal her traditional New Mexican stew won't face charges after all. Hmm. Last week, a state district judge dismissed charges against Jonathan Carlos Ray, who was charged in 2015 for the theft of his mother's stew. The judge says the only witnesses to the alleged crime were Ray and his mother. Police say Ray was arrested after he ignored his mother's orders to stay away from her stew and ran off with the holiday dish. According to a criminal complaint, Ray sent his mom a text uh, saying he wanted some of her stew. She told him no. The complaint says the mother later found her gate and garage broken and a pot of the stew missing. The stew called, is it Pasol? I believe so. Pasol is a traditional soup or stew made with pork or chicken, popular in Mexico and the American Southwest. See, again, you know, maybe she didn't want to share any of that stew, but did he try calling or texting asking for the recipe? Probably not. That's something I did yesterday, too. I Mm. said, Happy Mother's Day. By the way, can I have the recipe for your famous baked beans? And she gladly gave me the recipe. Hmm. It'd be a little harder to head on over to California to steal some baked beans from her. Right. But, but you could plan it. You could say, hey, mom, you're making some beans and then sneak in and steal it. Wow, that's sad. That is. Oh. But funny. Have you ever had pasol? Do you think it'd be no, worth I don't know. committing maybe, a crime? Maybe it's really good stew. You just don't know. <laughs> I do like good pork. Anyway, um, we'll take a break. When we come back, we are going to be replaying an interview uh, that Matt, Dr. Matt Townsend Conducted with uh, Dr. Maya uh, Sheetree Klein, who is going to talk to us about growing healthy kids with food straight from the soil. So, again, only the important and uh, life-changing topics here on the Matt Townsend Show, where our goal is to help you be the good in the world. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. What if our best intended efforts to protect our children's health were found to be the primary cause of some of the chronic illnesses that are on the rise? 
That's exactly what medical evidence now shows. One in 13 children now suffers from food allergies. In the last eight years, the number of children diagnosed with ADHD has jumped nearly 50%, and one in 45 children now carry an autism diagnosis. Many parents have been told that their children have these conditions for life, and they're just simply untreatable, uh, except our next guest um, may have an inside track, uh, some ideas that might help us uh, in some of these areas, and at least hopefully improve our health, our our homes, and uh, maybe just the well-being of our families. Dr. Maya Sheetreet Klein joins us now uh, this morning to talk a little bit more about this topic. Uh, Dr. Uh, Sheetreet Klein, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. What a fun book. I mean, it's such an interesting idea. It seems like, you know, farmers forever have been out there getting dirty, in the dirt, breathing the fresh air, and eating healthy food. Why wouldn't we go back to that style? Well, I think part of it is like we've really just moved away from a, a lifestyle that's outdoors. So we've now become, you know, pretty green addicted, I think, as a society, um, and we've become pretty interested in keeping things clean and sterile as much as possible and, um, and doing that for our kids. So we're missing out on a lot of the microbes and time outdoors and kind of the fresh, unprocessed food that used to be much more available. Now, and this is such an interesting, interesting thing, your background, you're a pediatric neurologist and a mother of three, and a lot of your... your uh, your, your feeling around this, your energy around this started with the, a focus on your own children. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think for many, for many doctors especially, we have these epiphanies because our children end up acting as our teachers yeah. and, um, or family members or ourselves sometimes. But um, for me, I really had a, an experience with my own son, my youngest, when he was about a year old, started to have breathing breathing difficulties. It was, you know, sort of like asthma a lot. And it really went on and on and on and on. It didn't just happen occasionally, but Mm. it was pretty much continuous. And he had weird rashes. He stopped gaining new speech. So he had been a really early talker. Wow. And then kind of plateaued. And, you know, as a a pediatric neurologist, obviously, and for any parent, I mean, it was terrifying. And, and nobody seemed particularly concerned. Our pediatrician, who was a very loving person and a, and a you know, old-time, really invested pediatrician, you know, gave him antibiotics and steroids and then inhalers, you know, and we were <laughs> kind of doing all these things. And it seemed like the medication was actually making him worse. Ooh. And uh, finally, I was like, this can't continue in this way, but nobody really seemed interested in coming up with the root cause. You know, it was just like, let's try to use this Band-Aid or that Band-Aid. And finally, I found an allergist who was willing to test him for food allergies, and it turned out he was allergic to soy. Oh, wow. I had been giving him soy milk when he was a year old. You know, actually, I was still breastfeeding him, but he was also getting soy milk when I was at work. And, uh, like as a healthier you know, option, probably. I thought it, well, he yeah. was a little, he got gassy with, with milk, and well, I thought, who well, you know, this is healthy. Yeah. And it turned out that what he was getting every single day was actually making him incredibly sick, not just affecting his gut, but also his lungs and also his, his development and his brain. Wow. And, and you're, you're paying attention to that. 
because there's a cause and effect to a lot of our foods and, and our lifestyle, but it's not always like an immediate cause and an immediate effect. It's not always like they go into, you know, some shock and drop and have and lose their ability to speak. It just might take years. Well, exactly. And there, you know, we think of the only kind of reaction you can have to food or, you know, any kind of allergy has to be like anaphylaxis. Right. Grab an EpiPen. You know, you're, you're keeling over, as you say, and, you know, your throat closes up, the hives. That's a very classic reaction. But from a, you know, from a neurological perspective and even from an allergist perspective, there's actually something called delayed hypersensitivity. And that hypersensitivity is something that can take um, hours or even days. In my son's case, when he had, once we took him off of soy, his breathing symptoms completely went away hmm. and didn't come back unless he had an exposure. And it turned out soy is a hidden food in a lot of different processed foods and restaurant foods. So we, we really learned a lot. That was sort of the beginning of my education. But in his case, it would be about 48 hours. So 24 hours later, he'd start to have a runny nose. And 48 hours later, the breathing issues would begin. Isn't that amazing? And that's such a delay. You might think it had something to do with that day. Oh, well, we were around a dog today. Exactly. Exactly. And then we just but keep I mean, eating or drinking soy. What I try to tell soy. people is that, is that every, every symptom has a reason. Things don't just happen for no reason. We don't, we're not always able to be good enough detectives to discover the reason, but it's always happening because of something. And, you know, it's important to really kind of be thinking and be critical of, you know, what's going on um, when you have a child who's having, you know, illnesses, because sometimes you can really make connections and change the course of their illness. When you say the dirt cure, um, what does that have to do with, because uh, to me, that that philosophy of becoming your own like detective, that's a really great idea. But the dirt cure, too, I guess, is that there's we also might be overprotecting our kids by keeping them away from germs. Well, what I mean when I say the dirt cure is three things. I mean exposure to germs and microbes. I mean eating fresh, unprocessed food from healthy soil and getting children outdoors in nature. So for me, those are the three foundational ways that we can reverse the course of what's happening in children's health right now, and really all of our health, is related to our, our body's need for those three elements that are all related to dirt that we're really not getting. And would also, I think, really prevent a lot of the need for all the pharmaceuticals people are getting um, and, and uh, even... It, you know, being out in nature actually even helps with mood and cognition. I see so many children who are anxious, who are depressed, who are, um, have ADD or ADHD diagnoses, who have executive functioning issue. Being outdoors in nature, there's actually many studies that I talk about in The Dirt Cure, which show that all of those things can improve just by being outside so in nature. Talk about some of the, the chronic illnesses, um, like... I, we we know exercise produces certain chemicals that that are that can be can act like antidepressants and um, talk about how not being outdoors and not having the exposure to nature impacts us. Well, 
So, you know, we know that there's a lot related to screen time, right? And we know that that keeps us probably a lot more indoors and certainly kids more indoors, right? I mean, I don't know about you when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. My mom basically, like, I was 10 years old. She kicked me out of the house <laughs> right. in the morning, let's say in the summer. I would hop on my bike, bike around to my friends. We'd go, you know, play tag or we'd go play by this creek near our house. I mean, kids are not doing that in the same way, particularly because so many of us live in urban areas. But, you know, even in suburban areas, it's much more, kids are much more indoors. And the kinds of things it seems to do, I mean, for one thing, there's a really interesting body of scientific literature that shows that being outdoors and being exposed to natural light prevents near, developing nearsightedness. <laughs> really? So, something from one to three hours a day is what they recommend to prevent nearsightedness. We used to think it was totally genetic. Yeah. But actually, and probably there's a component, of course, that is genetic, sure. just like with every condition. But there's also another element. We need to be interacting with our terrain, with our environment, and that light, they found out completely by accident in these studies, is what actually helps prevent <laughs> this epidemic of nearsightedness. In Korea right now, almost 97% of young men are nearsighted. Are you kidding me? That is that, and, and it's they're all probably on devices, right? Sitting in a house. Well, they're indoors, yeah. So actually, they've created a public health program, an initiative, getting people outdoors to try, getting kids outdoors to prevent, you know, all those hours indoors they're spending also in school. Mm -hmm. They get them outside. Well, and I'm going to tell you, being nearsighted in a war, that's not going to help everybody. <laughs> That's a big problem when all of yeah. your young men are nearsighted. This is um, – it's it's crazy. Like, it, But again, it, it seems like the system, it's not just immediate cause always and immediate effect. We're always so into the immediate learning. Um, th this process takes so much time that it's almost like we've been lulled to sleep. Well, absolutely. Things happen in this kind of very gradual – um, insidious way where suddenly we're, we're seeing so many health issues and they kind of creep up in you. And then, you know, I talk about this in the book, like I have so many patients who come and say, oh, my child's healthy, my child's normal. But it turns out, you know, they go to, they, they poop like once a week and, yeah. you know, they have, they have seasonal allergies. So they're taking something for that. They have eczema. So they're on steroid cream They you know, there's like a long list of different medications that they're taking. And it's sort of like, it entered in such an insidious way. They don't think, oh, my child's on five different medications. Mm -hmm. But but here we learn that, you know, there's such a fascinating study as well about being outdoors, how it impacts us. So soil itself is filled with amazing microbes that we interact with when we're outdoors. And so um, one teaspoon of soil has as many microbes as all the people on Earth. What? And <laughs> wow. it's unbelievable, right? Yeah. And one of those kinds of organisms, I mean, think of how many we still have yet to learn about. One of them, um, called Mycobacterium vacai, actually has been studied, and it's been shown that it boosts serotonin levels similar to um, SSRI antidepressants like Prozac or Zoloft. Oh, my heaven. So the kid eating the dirt is really probably self-medicating. Well, maybe <laughs> out not in the garden levels, absolutely, because yeah. they're also adding microbes into their gut. Absolutely, you know. But yeah, and and actually, another study that looked at that same organism found that um, in animal studies that that mice were able to complete a maze 
in half the time and with less anxiety, a difficult maze, than the mice who didn't get exposed to that. So there's this thinking that it actually boosts cognition and, and helps us feel more relaxed, which makes sense. Oh, totally. Well, and then if, you're, if you add on top of it that you're outdoors um, with the sun beaming down on you, giving you some vitamin D, you're getting fresh air, your body is moving... I mean, you add all of that and you're not having the negative effects of being indoors with with that type of lighting and a screen in front of your face. Boom. Right. And there's more, actually, because there's very interesting data that shows that when we are around trees, the more trees there are, the healthier we are. And when trees are actually cut down, more people die. That's population studies. Oh, my heavens. So we're very, very, we're in a very deep connection with the natural world, whether we, whether we know it or not, whether we want to be or not. And when we aren't honoring that connection and nurturing that connection, it actually leads to illness. We, we actually are sicker. Yeah. And, and, and then we just call this the new normal. We just think this is normal. This is who we are. We just have eczema. We have ADHD. We have... And I, and I better take some medicine for it. Well, and that's what's offered. You know, it's fascinating because, I mean, doctors, this is a whole body of scientific literature, and I referenced it throughout the book so that actually anyone, whether it be an educator, whether it be a parent or a grandparent, whether it be a physician, anyone can look and see the science is right there. And, and yet we're not really taking steps to change to change what we're doing. You know, I right. mean, wouldn't you think that knowing this information, we would, we would actually want to make the day different for, let's say, school? <laughs> <laughs> right, you know? right. Yeah, let's get outside a little bit more. Let's, let's take our class outside to do an activity. Well, and even having, I think, you know, having a nature curriculum mm-hmm. um, is something I really strongly believe in. I mean, take kids out into the woods. In Japan, there's something called forest bathing. It's a it's, a, it's called Shinrin-yoku, and it actually uh, means immersing yourself in the forest, and it's used as preventive medicine there, where they've actually studied and found that being in the forest makes people more focused. They actually perform better in the classroom or in work, and they're happier, they sleep better, and they actually have higher levels of anti-cancer proteins in their bodies. So it actually completely transforms their immune system just by walking in the forest. Holy cow. You we, know, yeah, we got. Oh, this is good, Maya. We got to take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Maya Sheetreat Klein. She's the author of the book uh, "The Dirt Cure" and "Growing Healthy Kids with Food Straight from Soil." She's a, a pediatric neurologist, for heaven's sakes, and she's teaching us. We got to get back to Mother Nature, man. Forget a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. Maybe just a spoonful of dirt, and you won't even need the medicine. How about that? We'll take a break, folks. We'll come back, continue this discussion about your health and uh, nature. Isn't it amazing? God provided the answer. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. 
You know, the law of the harvest, you reap what you sow. Maybe there's more to it than just a, some philosophy or great wisdom. Maybe uh, the law of the harvest is also you need to get out. You need to get outdoors and uh, participate in a harvest of some sort. Eat fresher foods and uh, use use really what, what God gave us to be able to live healthier, happier lives. The soil, the, the earth. Nature, expose yourself. Uh, our guest says we need to we need to get back to the dirt cure. Expose ourselves to germs. Uh, get you know, eat fresh food, and get out and closer to nature. There's there's a lot of uh, incredible research talking about the benefits of all of that and how it may be able to uh, be the antidote, maybe or just the the necessary you know input to create a healthier life. Dr. Amaya Sheetreet Klein is joining us. She's the author of The Dirt Cure, Growing Healthy Kids with Food Straight from the Soil. She's a pediatric uh, neurologist and mother of three. And uh, she has been basically on a, I guess, on a mission, trying to do what she can to improve the health of all of us and have us look at our health, I think, in a, in a more holistic way. Dr. Amaya Sheetreet Klein, welcome back to the show. Thank you. What do you think? I mean, is is it possible that if that if we just you know move away a little bit from the technology? It's so interesting to me that many times technology and nature uh, they they kind of seem they seem like antithetical. They seem you don't want your phone near the dirt, near the water. You know, you, you so we almost need to walk away, or you can bring it, I guess, take pictures and. But in the end, you're just saying get back and allow nature to do what nature does. Well, I think there's nothing, there's nothing that can replace just walking in the woods or walking next to the beach with nothing and just taking in what's there, listening to the sounds and, you know, just letting – it really is, you know, it regulates your nervous system, but it's also very spiritual. I mean, I think yeah. it's working on us in a physical and emotional and a spiritual way all the time. Um, but I also think it's possible to bring technology and use it to connect yourself to the natural world. So some examples of how my family does that is, for one thing, pictures, right? I mean, that's, I think, using a phone, using a camera, but going and finding things that are beautiful um, or things that really, you know, make us feel, uh, you know, turned on for some reason or another. So that's one way. Another way is actually um, using, there are some great apps. So one of them is actually called Merlin, and it's uh, an ornithology program. It actually helps identify birds. Hmm. So if you hear a bird or spot a bird and you want to know what bird that is, <clears throat> you can actually go into this um, this app and it'll say how big is the bird, you know, what time of year is it, what does it look like, and then you can actually hear the the, the bird's song and it will tell you, you know, the top three birds it could be, which is... yeah. Fun, you know. I well, mean, imagine having that exciting. as a kid when you were a kid going out on your journeys near the river. The stuff mm-hmm. you could look up and find. Right, exactly. And then there's another thing that my kids really love um, to do with my husband, which is um, geocaching. Yeah, we do that a and, lot out here. You know, it's like a big digital universal. Explain it. Explain it. 
Because <laughs> there's some people don't do this. Uh, we have a lot of children and da- and families that go out geocaching. Yeah. So I don't. I mean, you may be able to say more than I do, but really, it's just like finding. You know, if we're walking along somewhere and we checking for different. Um, different little areas of treasure, and right. then, you know, oh, my gosh, it must be over here. They go, they find it. It's hidden in some little place in the woods or park or wherever, and um, there'll be a little trinket inside, and then you leave a note or a little trinket when you take the one that's there, and it's just kind of a little fun it's a little fun treasure hunt. I it mean, is. it's just a way of kind of connecting. You're connecting with nature. You're connecting with other people, and and it's kind of fun because it's technology at the same time so it is a way to kind of create adventure outside and um, get kids excited about it and again it's fairly simple if all you got to do is go look up geocaching um, online and you'll get a variety of sites and sources that can get you on an adventure in your area basically is do you see because it really is it's food and um but it's it's kind of allowing yourself to to get out psychologically, emotionally, physically, get active. We talk about we need to get our kids more active, and um, but as a, as a physician, you see kind of the immune the the immunology of this, the the power that all of this can have on our immune systems. Do you think we're we've been too uptight about keeping our kids clean, so clean that they don't? get any benefit from germs and bacteria and I think we've really uh we you know many many years ago <laughs> there was Louis Pasteur and the germ theory which offered a lot right he yeah. said there are invisible to us microbes um germs that can kind of attack enter our bodies attack us and potentially kill us and that was good it brought up hand-washing as something very important, which actually has saved lots of lives, and the idea of isolating or quarantining when someone's sick, and that's important. But on the other side of it, as we often do, we really swung the pendulum way in that direction, and we lost the idea that there could be more available to us or benefit to us, as there often is from anything from these same germs or microbes. And it turns out that, and I always say germs are microbes, but really germs are kind of like a pejorative term for, for microbes. And microbes mean bacteria, viruses, fungi, parasites. And all of those things now are kind of coming up in the science as being beneficial from, obviously we all have heard, or most of us have heard about probiotics, where we actually on purpose take bacteria in pills yeah. <laughs> and swallow them. I mean, if you would have talked to people about doing that 30 years ago, they would have, you know thought you were an absolute lunatic. So that's one example. But even more than that, there are, um, there are scientific studies looking at giving parasite eggs to people with autoimmune diseases, and it's actually very helpful for things like allergies, asthma, autoimmune diseases, even neurologic illnesses that's being looked at. Hmm. Um, very interesting. Viruses, also a lot of benefit. Viruses, it turns out, take over for bacteria in our digestive tract um, when we are on antibiotics to help prevent any damage from happening. Isn't that it, Viruses end up protecting your body when and in, and in antibiotics fact, are on board. Help you. Um, there's also some studies on, let's say, mumps. People who have had mumps in childhood 
have half the risk of developing ovarian cancer later in life. Hmm. And yet we, we, yeah, we're so fearful of the initial threat, not seeing this, the systemic complexity that we might be benefiting from. Wow. It's looking at the whole picture. Yeah. Exactly. This, this is just about holistic, right? It's just seeing more of the whole picture and seeing and allowing nature to kind of do what nature should do. Well, I think that's really the big point is that the answers are available to us if we look at what's already here. We don't have to keep coming up necessarily with more and more kind of synthetic or technological things. It's not to say there can't be benefit there, but we are kind of a, whatever we do ends up often being a poor imitation of what we could actually be benefiting from if we were actually connecting and honoring you know, the natural resources that we actually have. Yeah, we make a pharmaceutical that may actually cause other problems even, well, and yet there's a natural way we can find another way to do it. Well, for example, we're hearing so much about antibiotic resistance, but it turns out that the newest antibiotics are being developed from soil microbes and there's not a problem of resistance when you use these so- this soil microbe. This is probably something coming up the pike very soon. Mm. Similarly, essential oils are, are now being touted and being investigated, again, for antibiotic-resistant um, MRSA. You know, everyone's very nervous about this uh, MRSA. Yeah, right. And there's actually benefits from essential oils because plants are very complex. Soil is very complex. Humans cannot approximate that level of complexity, but our bodies respond to it. In fact, a BYU researcher is using other viruses, 14 or so viruses, that uh, are already on our bodies to actually combat MRSA. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when they all combine, they'll combat MRSA if, if we could just get out of the way. <laughs> it's amazing. Oh, exactly. Exactly. It's just, it's a. I think it's a. It's a powerful idea, and I, maybe it's one of those things where you need a pediatric neurologist and a mother, and somebody who loves nature to to have this convergence to to teach us the rest of this stuff. What else can we do? It's just a mom, a dad, you know, that that are listening out there, a grandparent. Um, what What's your final recommendation? We have a, about one minute left. What Where should we start? Get the book. Go to the dirt. Uh, go to dirtcure.com. Um, then what? Well, I think reading labels of food and making sure that you know you're eating as much unprocessed food as possible. And that I go into quite a bit in the book um, because we need to nourish kids so that their bodies have the tools. Children are great at healing themselves. All of us are really, but we have to have the tools to do it. And that really comes almost entirely from the things that we talked about, and food is one of those things. So whole, fresh, unprocessed food, as unprocessed as possible. And, um, you know, also not being afraid if your kid gets a fever occasionally. It's actually important for the body. Don't interfere as long as you see, you know, if it's a brand-new baby or the child looks incredibly toxic, you know, for sure you need to get them checked out right away. But beyond that, you know, you let the kid have their fever, you support them, you give them soup, you keep them comfortable, and let their body actually have that experience because the immune system and the body's always learning, and yeah. it's important. Yeah and, and, yeah, and be there. You can be there. It's not like neglect. 
Pay yeah. attention. <laughs> I mean, that's what it is. We're all so neurotic. Like, yeah, but I don't want him to. But the suffering, it's just like everything else. Let him stress. Let let it, A little stress can help. Yes, exactly. A little stress on the system. Well, we appreciate your work, uh, Dr. Maya Sheetreet Klein and the book The Dirt Cure. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Great job. Keep up the great work. Uh, go uh, look up dirtcure.com. Wonderful resource. And go look at the pictures on the site. That's what you can do with a camera in nature is actually get out in nature. Um, don't just be thinking about how you can get the picture up on Facebook, but go notice what you're noticing and spend some time out there. Powerful stuff. We'll take a break, folks. Remember, helping you uh, live longer, one of the goals of the show, and apparently a little dirt every day will help. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we've got a lot of fun still left on the show. Uh, and in fact, we've got some more MT news. Uh, we're celebrating National Chocolate Chip Day. One story that uh, I teased earlier was about a possum or opossum, if you will. A Pennsylvania man trying to scare away possums by setting a fire has destroyed his home. The blaze began when a man used butane to light a pile of leaves in his backyard. The man apparently hoped the smoke would help rid him of the marsupials, which are known for playing dead. A city fire marshal says the fire got out of control and spread to the home, which was built of wood. The building was condemned. The fire did $50,000 in damage. Officials say the man had problems with bees also. You know, one mm. trick that we learned in one of the homes that we lived in is because uh, they were going under our shed in the backyard. The and, bees or oh, I'm sorry, the the opossums, the yeah, opossums. Okay, and uh, we were told trap them in there for a day or two, just like put some kind of a sharp, uh, right. you know, blockage there, yeah. so that they can't come out, mm -hmm. and then take it away. They'll leave immediately and they won't come back right. because they'll be worried that they can't won't be able to get out. So. Hmm. Anyway, that's a little safer than trying to <laughs> hunt them of some, some kind. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Terry, anything else that uh, we want to talk so, about? They keep trying to improve the the dryer for your clothes. Mm -hmm. right, a clothing dryer. They I'm just to, trying not to die. Yeah, they're just yeah. They're trying to figure. So researchers at Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee have built an energy efficient clothes dryer that blasts laundry with high frequency sound waves. The machine uses ultrasound and to vibrate water droplets out of fabric, forming a fine mist that is siphoned out like a regular dryer. It's a different approach, mm -hmm. different idea. The ultrasonic dryer can dry a medium-sized load in 20 minutes compared with 50 minutes for a conventional machine. It also uses 70% less energy than conventional dryers, which are infamous energy hogs. The typical household dryer uses more power over the course of a year than a refrigerator, dishwasher, and clothes washer combined. Mm-hmm. Right? So you've cut that, then all of a sudden your power bill drops. Yeah. Well, then the electric company raises the rates because they're not making enough money. So that's, that's all just an evil circle. Yeah. So as the project developed in collaboration with GE Appliances, which plans to eventually use the technology in its own dryer. So this is something we may actually see. Sound waves to blast the water out of your clothes rather than trying to use heat to dry Interesting. your Interesting. I'm sure Alexa is going to be involved somehow. Always. <laughs> You'll get a text message when your dryer's done or whatever. It's just... Yeah. Maybe you can watch TV right there on the on top of the dryer. 
That's the next step. <sighs> also a good hiding place. Not that I would advocate that. I've just found one of my kids in the dryer before. Yeah, don't do that. Yeah. That's dangerous. <laughs> Things happen. Anything else? Um, there was a drone. It flew a total of 97 miles to and from Austin, Texas last week to complete one of the largest, longest drone deliveries yet in the United States, ferrying a four-pound package with a machine part. The drone flew a, a, a set route to, over various uh, Texas farms and roads before reversing course to finally deliver the package to a person inside Austin's city limits. So inside Austin, they flew it out so far, turned around and came back and dropped it off someplace in Austin. Hmm. So they did that to get the 97 miles. Now they have this record. Okay. The flight, which lasted a little over two hours, was completed by a group that has been flying drones in the uh, Federal Aviation Administration's designated Nevada drone test site with support from three different drone service companies. Although the drone flew autonomously, observers were positioned along the route the, throughout the entire operation in order to keep the aircraft within line of sight, which is currently required by the FAA. So it flew 97 miles, but the entire time a human was looking at it. So it was within the wow, because that's the current rules. How, how long until we see uh, drones battling each other? Remember that show BattleBots on Comedy oh, yeah. Central? Oh, it's it's on YouTube probably. I don't know if like any sort of organized manner, but people are weaponizing their drones and it's coming, coming at each other. <laughs> you got people of uh, what? They, all of a sudden congressional hearings happened on it when they saw some YouTube – uh, video somebody took a a rifle and rigged up a uh, a drone oh, so my they goodness. can automatically fire a rifle from the drone. Oh, that's scary! And they're like, "Oh, they weaponized it." And you're like, "They can fire darts." There's a guy with a blowtorch who cooked a turkey. I mean, these things happen. That's, I remember right? that story. Yeah, <laughs> so it's, come on, settle down. <laughs> this isn't going to turn into some crazy thing. But you know, keeping the the eye ahead. I mean, but the the FAA rules are uh, people are complaining more now, so we'll start yeah. seeing some movement that way as they want more freedom so they can test these things in more real real world situations so yeah it flew 97 miles well look for that uh, new tv show drone wars on true tv i don't know anyway we'll take a break when we come back we'll continue the fun here on the matt townsend show where uh, we're hopefully helping you live healthier happier and uh, more informed lives we'll be right back This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Monday morning. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. I'm joined here by Terry South as well. Our intrepid producer, and uh, we we miss Matt, but we wish him well. So send him a tweet and uh, say get well soon, get well soon, Doctor Matt. And uh, it's too bad he's gone because we're selling celebrating National Chocolate Chip Day. And uh, yeah, who'd have thought it all began at a hotel? Is that much of a sway for you, Terry? When you go to a hotel and they say we've got free cookies in our lobby. So stay here. No. No. I'm all about price. Price. You're not even concerned about the general cleanliness of the hotel. I mean, you don't (laughs) want to go someplace where you're going to contract a disease or something. But, yeah, you want to make sure, you know, you're probably getting a – everybody wants a deal. Yes. I once uh, stayed at a hotel where I drove up to my room and there was a guy in a hooded sweatshirt. This was at night Mm. standing in front of my door just staring at the door. Oh, nice. 
And so that really uh, made me feel confident that I'd made the right choice. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't see any problem with that at I, all. I got my money back and, and uh, left, but not before taking a cookie on the way out. Mm. Anyway, uh, we're also going to be speaking with Suzanne Deggs-White, who uh, actually we're going to be replaying an interview with her that Matt uh, Townsend conducted about why, you know, like... You've heard of those relationships where you're lucky in love. How do you become the lucky one that is lucky in love? Well, she's going to be shedding more light on that. And then, of course, uh, to top it all off, we're going to be speaking with Spencer and Jerem from BYU Sports Nation. See what uh, is coming up on their program here in just about 52, 51 minutes. All that fun ahead. But first, let's head over to Terry South and find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? Access codes to the cockpit doors on United Airplanes were made public, the airline announced, but United promised it as procedures in place to keep the deck secure. Yikes. So after 9-11, because of what transpired during the uh, the airplane flights where the airplanes were taken over because they were able just to open the door into the cockpit, now yeah. they're all secured. There's actually a key panel and all that to unlock the door. Those codes were accidentally leaked. Whoops. Now, uh, Maddie, Ke- uh, the C- so they, they're uh, in an email uh, statement to NBC Los Angeles, Maddie King said Saturday, she's a spokesperson for United, that the information was inadvertently made public, but she said, I can confirm it was not a breach. Hmm. Um, so someone just made a mistake and okay. sent that all. It wasn't someone broke into their system and stole it. They did it themselves. So it's it like somebody hitting reply all instead of just the person that you actually want to converse with. Exactly. Okay. The safety of our customers and crews are a top priority at United. They utilize a number of measures to keep our flight deck secure beyond door access information. Uh, she said in the interim that protocol, they, they put a protocol into place that ensures our cockpits will remain secure. They didn't tell us what those were because, you know, security is important. And we'll probably learn that later when they, again, leak some information, apparently. Yep. Um, and this, just a comforting thought, United has 4,496 daily departures. The airline serves 215 domestic airports and 122 international destinations. According to its website, it operates 744 aircraft. Hmm. Who were all exposed by this. Oh, my goodness. Not, not a breach. Not, not a, a breach. breach. Not a breach. Your words. Uh, so what is it like to float out in the vacuum of space? Ooh, I wouldn't want to find this out. This question was proposed, was given to a couple U.S. astronauts. He, one of them called it a ginormous fondue pop, bumble, bubbling over with piping hot awesome sauce. <laughs> Astronaut Jack Fisher had that to say as he embarked on his first ever spacewalk. He was a little enthusiastic sure. about going out there. A little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's up on the International Space Station, went on his walk on Friday, and he said it's a giant fondue pot bubbling over with piping hot awesome sauce. Whatever that yeah. may be, that's his, his feeling. Uh, the comments by Fisher, he's 43, were carried live on NASA TV as he and his colleague Peggy Wilston, 57, she made it's that the spacewalk was the 200th spacewalk to build and maintain the orbiting outpost. It's the 200th spacewalk of the International Space Station. Yeah. So, you know, the astronauts were kind of nostalgic and everything. Uh, the pair completed all major work scheduled for the day. Fisher enthusiasm for the beauty of the Earth. Beneath him was apparent throughout the spacewalk. He goes, ooh, it's it's the Bahamas. As, as he fawned <laughs> at one point, he goes, ooh, they're my favorite. Wow, they're so blue. As he's just making this running commentary as he's doing it. Uh, Whiston, who was making her ninth spacewalk, could often be her chuckling 
at uh, the rookie's yeah. enthusiasm for what, what's out there. She holds the record for most spacewalks by a woman and ranks fifth for the most hours spent in space by an astronaut with 57 hours and 35 minutes. Well, it sounds like it ended better than uh, the movie Gravity with Sandra yeah. Bullock and George Clooney. <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever watch that movie again. Really? Watching it, Gravity, the first time it was, I mean, it is a roller coaster. Oh, she yeah. is whipping around the planet in orbit trying to catch yeah. something. And it just happened that every time, oh, there's this, there's this opportunity, and there's this opportunity, and then just the fact that it's just, it was confusing at times because they're trying to show you how disorienting it is. Oh yeah, because you can't just stop yourself in space. There's nothing mm-hmm. acting on you, so you're just momentum and inertia flipping around. So, but it just seems so disorienting to me. I may never watch that again. Who knows? Finally, the name Kylo. As in the Star Kylo Wars, Ren? the Star Wars vi- uh, villain Kylo Ren is now one of the top 1,000 most popular baby names for boys in the U.S. According to new data on baby names released Friday by the Social Security Administration, there were a total of 238 Social Security cards uh, applicants named Kylo. Ah, oh, come on! Born in 2016, making it the 901st most popular boy's name for the year. It is by far uh, the boy's name that was has grown the fastest in popularity since 2015 when the year's highest grossing movie Star Wars was introduced. So that would be the reason people take that is because it's Kylo with the movie. There's a reason, right, a motivation for the name. But he was a villain. He was, and people were, you know. What about Ren? Ren is popular amongst uh, amongst girls. Okay. That happened too. A girls? Yeah. Ren. The most popular boy's name in 2016, by contrast, was, uh, as we talked about earlier, yeah. Noah. Noah. But they don't give a reason, and none of the articles have really pointed to any sort of – I mean, other than Noah appears in the Bible, there's no other reason that really pushes people to name their kid that. I'm telling you, it just comes full circle, and you know now they'll just try all the different variants of the spelling of Noah. Right. It's just how it, <laughs> how it works. Um, so I looked up – some names that we're familiar with to see how popular they were. Jeffrey yes. is the 301st most popular baby name last year. Now, Jeffrey spelled J-E-F-F-R-E-Y? Yes. Okay, the correct spelling then. Yes, the other one is ranked in there also. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, my name, Terry, 655th. Whoa. Matthew was 15th most popular. That's still hanging in there. Still hanging in there. Wow. So Matthew's the 15th most popular baby name hmm. from last year. So you can go on the on the website and find um, how your name is trended all the way back to like 1950s. What's so the I mean, website again? Just Social Security. Oh. Oh, yeah. You have to hunt around a little bit. If you put in Social Security and baby names, you'll find a link somewhere. Kylo. I'll throw it up on our Twitter feed. You can kind of look at the results. They're kind of interesting. Something to kill some time as you walk back into work and hopefully you're – Computer network isn't hit by the ransom spyware <laughs> oh or whatever gosh. attack that hit the, the world last weekend. So. I'm curious. Yes. Were there any names when you were naming either your son or your daughter that you would have loved to have uh, strongly considered but that your wife just immediately vetoed? Maybe something from a movie or – I wanted to name my kid Thor. Yes. Like, were you serious? You seriously yeah, yeah. wanted – okay. Even like a middle name. I just wanted – I thought it would be kind of cool. Just uh-huh. be like – I wanted to call my kid Thor. Even if his name was, you know, his first name was something else, I would call him Thor. Did she even? No. First, no. She okay. said if she went into, the first Thor movie was coming out right around the time she was supposed to be, you know, delivering the baby. Yeah. So she thought, if I go into labor during the movie, then you can have Thor as a middle name. So. Went, okay, cool. 
It didn't I, happen, so it didn't happen. <laughs> I kind of want to give my boy the middle name of Vaughn, mm. but I wouldn't say first name Vaughn Simpson. I would just say Vaughn Simpson. Vaughn Simpson. And my wife doesn't like that idea. Hmm. And she's like, You're I we're not gonna call him that because you'll just say Von Simpson. And I and I say, Of course I will. Well, yeah. It has a nice ring to it. Right. And uh just to, yeah, just like yelling at the kid, Von Simpson, get in here. Yeah. Well, why would she wanna take away your fun? <laughs> I don't know. You could just call him that. And nobody but uh, nobody but his parents are gonna call him by his middle name anyway. Right. Unless about, you're Dr. Matt. I have about twenty other names for my kid. And he gets mad because he wants me to use his full name. I'm like, I'm not using your name. I'm Four of call... which you can say on the air. No, they're not. They're just <laughs> stuff that's come up. I call him Bob because I mis I mistyped a text to my wife one time about him. So we call him Bob. You know, it's just <laughs> that's funny. He he knows who I mean, and that's really what it comes down to. Is yeah. Does he understand why I'm calling him? Yeah. And he does, and he gets mad because I didn't use his name. So, in other news, wow. we 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 spend a lot of time talking about TV here. Hmm. And, uh, and Matt always complains. He does. Even though he watches more TV and movies than I do. Yeah, he watches more than I do also. Yeah. But uh, but he doesn't want to talk about it for some reason. I think he, <laughs> I don't know. He, he might be feel like he's out of his depth for some reason. Maybe there's a negative association there because it seems like he's been not well lately and he's always watching TV during those times when he's not well. Right. If you remember, he was here Friday. Yeah. And he said that uh, it's been wonderful. I haven't had to use my electronic devices at all. I've just had that my phone was away, everything was away, and I go, great. And then I went, so did you watch much Netflix? He goes, ooh, watched a lot of Netflix. <laughs> he watches it on his phone and his laptop. Wow. So nothing he said was true. Eh, it's, all, it's all degrees, right? Degrees of, of truthfulness. Like, like Obi-Wan said, a, from a certain point of view. Yes. So uh, a new, new research study from eMarketer shows the majority of TV content being consumed by Americans is still being watched on a TV screen through a set-top box, either a, either live, a DVR, or on-demand. Mm-hmm. 55% of respondents said they watch it on a TV and use a set-top box. Okay. Which is the, the trend that you keep hearing is people are cutting the cord. Right. They're going to streaming options. They're not. They're getting out of these cable and satellite contracts they don't watch it people aren't watching it on big screens they're watching it on their phones or laptops but the majority of people that responded said they're watching it on a normal well large tv mm-hmm. which is how i like to consume it because i want to actually see the whole picture right on your phone or laptop it could be kind of small maybe the screen isn't as good as it could be but on your tv it looks fine you can watch it there the problem is getting all the content to your tv that's really the headache nowadays yeah. So as it says, uh, compared to 22% that are watching it on smaller screens, meaning laptops, desktops, or smartphones. So 55% on TVs, 22% on other devices. Mm. Why it matters, if TV content is to be consumed on smaller screens, it needs to be made for a mobile viewing experience, which means shorter, quicker, more interactive formats. Do you like watching long, like hour-long content on your phone? You know, I... I'm never able to just sit down and watch something in its entirety, so I often will watch something on my phone right. just so that I can get in like five minutes here, ten minutes there. Um, so it doesn't really matter to me. With my, my phone, uh, and depending on if you have like an Apple device or an Android device, you can, you can stream that device to your TV if you have the right equipment. Right, yeah. And I have that at my home, so I can do that. It's kind of a hassle. Yeah. The phone isn't the best... 
uh, platform to be able to select, program, and share them on your screen. The picture quality is not the best. You yeah. end up having to, yeah. So you end up with pixelated screens sometimes, and it's kind of a weird setup. Um, so they're saying that the, uh, the screens, the, the the picture needs to actually fit your phone if you're mm-hmm. going to watch it on your phone. Don't make a TV experience and try to have me watch it on a small screen when it's meant for a bigger screen to watch right. on, right? Yeah. And, you know, HD and all that kind of stuff. So it says – uh, and, the, and what they say is 55, 55% of all mobile sessions where people grab their phone and do something on it or watch something, most of these videos are being viewed for 30 seconds or less. Yeah. I mean, so people yeah. like watch, oh, I'll watch this later. And then they never, never get back to it. Well, because so many people are just, you know, flipping through Facebook and watching right. the little videos on there. Facebook yeah. announced last week that they're going to put out their own original programming, some of it longer, most of it shorter. Yeah. Easier to consume, quick hit type of hmm. Stories, news, all kinds of stuff. Okay, I right. take my answer back. I could, you know, I could watch something that's super long, but as long as it shouldn't, it's not the type of uh, TV show or movie that really needs to be seen on a big screen. Right. So if it's just like a drama or a comedy, I'm fine with that. But if it's like a Marvel movie or Star Wars, I'm gonna want, I'm gonna want to see it on the big screen. My bigger problem is I want to use my computer for other things. Uh-huh. And if it's just a one screen to watch a movie or a show or something, I'd rather that on this bigger screen that I sure. have over here and then I can use my computer for something else while I watch that. Multitask. Yeah. And it won't let you do that if you're watching your show. Yeah. On your on your laptop or something. So you... I, I always try to move something somewhere else. So, do, But I, I'm curious, though, do you ever just sit down and just watch something with no other distractions? Like not folding laundry, you're just sitting no. watching the screen. Never happens. Always distracted. Interesting. Huh. Well, there's some shows now because there's one show I watch called The Americans where half the show's in Russian. With right. With English to... subtitle. <laughs> you're sitting there like, wait a second, missing the whole plot of the show. Okay, then yeah. you have to go back and read it. Those shows are frustrating to me because I really just, a lot of my shows I can listen and you miss like half the show, but you totally follow the plot because they're just kind of a basic plot of the show. Right. But there's some that now you have to actually watch. And like we, we, we share the show Fargo. Uh-huh. Like, and there's so much going on in that show, you can't just like half pay attention or you just have no concept of what just happened. And there were actually some subtitles on that show too. But yeah, that's an yeah. example of a show where I will not do anything else. I'll just sit down, watch it, no distractions. You know, occasionally my wife will ask me to like, oh, could you rub my leg, do this? And I just do a poor job because I'm just trying to focus on this TV show. And no, then she no, just gets say, mad at me, you know. You should say, I'm watching TV. I have no time for you. So use that phrase. It usually helps. That's going to go so well with, you know, a 39-week-old or 39-week right. pregnant woman. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Well, it's it's good to kind of put a little magnifying glass on our viewing habits and see what we're doing while we're watching. We'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about relationships. Actually, we're going to be replaying an interview that Dr. Matt conducted with Suzanne Deggs-White, who is going to talk about the lucky ones and maybe how you can become one of those in your relationship. Interesting topic. When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Sometimes we see other people so happy in life and love, and we wonder how everyone else ends up so lucky. Why do they tend to find that beautiful spouse, or why is their uh, you know doting fiancé so amazing and you just got dumped? 
Well, Dr. Suzanne Deggs-White, professor and chair of the Counseling, Adult, and Higher Ed Department at Northern Illinois University, joins us today to explain why some people seem so lucky in relationships compared to others who just can't find that uh, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Dr. Suzanne Deggs-White, welcome back to The Matt Townsend Show. Thank you very much, Matt. I'm pleased to be here. We love having you on. You, have, you bring us so much insight. Uh, talk to us about this concept of luck. Does it exist? You know, we want to believe that luck exists because when we do, it takes a lot of responsibility off of our shoulders if we assume that life is going to hand us what we need. But really, luck is about knowing what to do at the right moment and putting yourself in the right place at the right time. Mm. So, so luck is more about personal action than the world smiling on you and giving you everything you think you want. So it might be that, I guess, luck are, are these people that maybe just navigate life a little better or they might be more proactive. Is that what it is then? Part of that is that that is true. Yeah, you know, if we navigate, we can't we can't have good things happen to us if we don't put ourselves out in the world. And so, people who we think, oh, they're so lucky, everybody loves to be around them. Well, what they're doing is what is drawing people to them. And so, we have to remember what action are we taking that will bring to us the good hmm. things that we want in life. Yeah, I guess we'd rather attribute it to some, you know, generic kind of, I don't know ethereal concept like luck than just putting yourself yeah. out there. Yeah, it takes a lot of work and energy, really, to for, mo- for many of us to build the lives we want. And if we think we're not lucky in love, it keeps us from having to put ourselves at the risk of rejection as well. Mm. That is, that's, it's true, isn't it? It's just, yeah. it, it just resonates. So are there things then that we can do to to put ourselves in a better position? There, there, there are certainly a few things we can do. You know, number one is to take action. There's a saying that fa- fa- fortune favors the bold, and if we don't get out there and take action and put ourselves into the path of possibility, then we're not going to have any um, payoff. Yeah. If, if we don't act, we don't get a payoff. So being willing to take action is really important in life. And it doesn't, I mean, that that action could be on your job, and then you're lucky you get a really good job, or it could be right. on your dating life. It could be in anything. It could be really, you know, it could be in your friendship circle, your family relationships. It could be your job. It could be academic areas. If you want a better job and you don't start looking, it's doubtful it's going to come to you. Hmm. What, about, what about somebody that's just introverted and... They a bold act forward might be perceived as that by them as just uh, you know showboating or yeah undoable right yeah 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 impossible yeah. Um, and and for many people who are introverted your know, introversion is if we look at you know the kind of the basic psychological concept it's for pe- introverts draw energy from being on their own and reflecting where extroverts draw energy from being out among other people. Well, sometimes we're going to have to spend energy to be able to get the, the results we want. So then, you know, as an introvert myself, you know, if I put myself out there, a lot more opportunities are going to happen than if I just stay back in my own little safe zone mm. and don't risk rejection or don't risk success. So introverts, yeah, it, it's hard for many of us to put ourselves out there to be bold. But if we don't take a chance, we're not gonna we're not gonna reap reward. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you can take a very calculated chance, right? Like, I mean, you right. write, you're an author, and you put you put stuff out there. But 
it's not like you haven't thought it through. Right. Yeah. You ha- you have to reflect. You have to you have to build. You know. Sometimes you have to draw up your energy. You have to really convince yourself that this is the right step to take, whatever that step might be. You know. Even um, you think about people who have admired someone from afar for years in in romance, but they're too afraid to you know strike up a conversation. This may have been their moment. You know, their lucky break to find the perfect romance, a perfect true love for themselves. But if they're not willing to make the first move, then that relationship might never happen. Mm, that's so true. So we can take action, and, and that would that would kind of pick us up a bit. What are some other things we should be doing to, I guess, improve the likelihood of a little luck? Well, one thing, you need to know what you want in life so that when it arrives, you're actually able to recognize it. Yeah. Um, sometimes, you know, we, we, we'll say, oh, boy, I didn't know what a good thing I had until I let it go. Or I didn't know what a wonderful person that person was until, you know, after we broke up. Or, boy, that was a great job, but I walked away from it. Or, boy, I let this friend down. There's so many times in life where we have had good fortune and good things have happened to us. But because of our own belief that maybe this isn't good enough, maybe I don't deserve this, maybe I don't know what I need yet, we let good things get away from us. And sometimes I think one of those regrets is what we let slip through our fingers. Mm. And so being really aware of what you need in your life and kind of you, you hear about gratitude lists. Yeah. Sometimes you know, taking stock of what you do have in your life and what you're grateful for can help you begin to recognize, you know, what, where you have been fortunate in life, what your good fortune truly is. Instead so really, of, yeah, and being like proactive about it, because the benefit of the list is you could do it every day. What are three things you saw today that you're grateful for? Yeah, and you know, it's not hard to do. Once you, it's funny, you know, people, as a counselor, I've worked with a lot of people, and the people who I see generally are not happy in their lives. But when they're encouraged to write gratitude lists, one, one client one time mentioned that now she has Zen moments where she kind of stops in her day and recognizes, you know, all the beauty that exists in her, in her world, in her life, and in the things she's enjoying. And I think by calling our attention to what our good fortune truly is, it can change your whole perspective. Mm-hmm. It's, well, it's really powerful. Because next to you is somebody standing there thinking you're lucky because, oh, right. look at her hair. She's so lucky. Yeah. Her hair yeah. is so pretty. And then, so that's this, this rotate, this view of lucky, I guess, is rotating through all of us. It, you know, it is. I, don't, I think it's human nature to, to aspire to be better. And however we see being better modeled for us is what we begin to think we want. It's like the commercials kids see from early on in TV. You know, oh, you know, if I, if I, you know, if I was so-and-so, I'd be lucky because I'd have whatever the newest cool thing from leapfrogs up to iPad watches to whatever it might be. Because we begin to think other people are luckier because they have these possessions yeah. or these relationships. And it's because we're not taking stock of, you know, what what we need and what we have in our own lives. Because mm. we, do, we do think other people, we, we want to believe that luck happens because, again, that takes responsibility off of us to make our own luck happen. Oh, it's so true. So true. Let's take a break. More with Dr. Suzanne Deggs-White. Uh, she is walking us through an article we found on her Psychology Today blog called Lifetime Connections. The name of the article is Who Gets Lucky in Love and How You Can Join Them. Stick with us, folks. We'll uh, continue the discussion on the other side of the break. We'll be right back.
friends to the Matt Townsend Show. Do you feel like you are lucky in love, lucky in life? Dr. Suzanne Deggs-White joins us, and uh, she is uh, got a wonderful blog on psychology today called Lifetime Connections. We love having her on our show. She's just got a ton of information and insight. She's been a professional counselor as well, and she is a professor and chair of the Counseling Adult and Higher Ed Department, Education Department at Northern Illinois University. Uh, Suzanne, we appreciate you being back. Thank you so much. You were telling us about one of the keys to, to kind of managing your own luck in life is you got to act. You got to do stuff. You got to get out and get busy. But you also have to kind of know what you want and notice what's happening that's good in your life. Absolutely. You have to be aware of the good stuff that's going on as well as taking off your blinders and sharpening your metaphorical peripheral vision. Hmm. Um, by that, I mean, you know, a lot of things, you know, you hear about people saying, wow, it was a lucky break. I almost, you know, I almost missed my train or I almost didn't meet this person. And a lot of times we kind of look at that as luck, but sometimes it's we've raised our awareness of what's going on around us instead of being so focused on the minutia of the day that we're able to find good fortune in the world around us. Hmm. Things we might not expect, we're attuned to because we don't, we've taken off our blinders in life. It's so true. You could be a single mom and be so frustrated because of your marriage failing and yet not see other things have lined up perfectly for you. Right. You know, the the, the expression, when the Lord closes a door, he opens a window. Mm-hmm. It's kind of that idea that sometimes if we keep trying to open that door that's shut, we're forgetting that there's maybe a, a half a dozen windows that we might go out and find something even different and more and more appropriate for what we need. Yeah. So being, it's we I joke about you know Spider Man and Spidey senses tingling. Well, sometimes we have to kind of listen to what we're picking up. We don't really have words for, uh-huh. and so letting your peripheral vision, you know, being aware all around you. It, it's I mean, and again, that's that's doable. This isn't. I mean, yeah. I guess is it lucky to to be aware? I mean, how many times have you been trying to find a parking place? Right. And then you find one right in the perfect place, right yeah. where you wanted it. And that may just have been because you were paying attention. Right. You were paying attention. You waited for someone to pull out. Right. You know, you, did, you didn't storm off and say, I'm going to go find a lot <laughs> further away. I'm just right. going to go ahead. I'm just going to hang out here and it's going to magically open. Um, and it does magically open. I, it's, it's kind of funny in life that if we, if we stop and, and kind of take stock all around us, we're going to see 360 degrees of our existence where many of us are really limited to kind of like a 45-degree angle of where we're going next, forgetting that you know, there are things that surround us that are better for us than what we think we want. Mm, I love that. That is huge advice. Yeah. Um, why and what else? What else should we be doing? Because I, it seems like every one of these also puts the ball back in my court. Right. Instead right. of me placing all my supposed future luck in someone else's court. Yeah, you know, and, and it is really up to us. People will say, you know, you have to make your own luck. And other people will say, well, the Lord only helps those who help themselves. And right. again, it's put, you know, there, there is support for us. You know, you want, you want to find a new partner. There's a wonderful collection of online, you know, very reliable, very successful um, single sites online. But you're not going to be getting any calls or getting any texts if you don't get yourself out there and, and make yourself available. Mm. 
I'm not advertising that way of finding a partner, but but most of the, you know, you, there's community organizations. That's another one. Um, building your geographical or virtual network, you've really got to be a player in, in your life if you really want to get a starring role. It's so true. If you want to walk on part in your own life, yeah. well, that, that, that's kind of, the, the, the good things aren't going to happen to you because you might not have a name. You might not have a, a line. You may just kind of walk through life like an extra, but you know, being willing to kind of take center stage and lead the life that that you feel you were meant to leave is is essential, and it is putting the ball back into someone else's court. Mm. And uh, again, the network: the more you know, the more people you know, right. and the more proactive you are. I mean, so it, this all builds on itself. So now you have a bigger network where you're taking action and you're exploring what you want and you're sharpening right. your vision. I mean, and this people is are connecting with you. That's you it. Know, people are knowing you. It's funny, you know, the, 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 about building your social network. I, I know that the best jobs I've landed back before I became an academic were because I knew the right person, and and the other parts being in the right place at the right time. And those are things. Not that I'm more qualified, less. Qual- it's not comparing qualifications, but it's being available when an opportunity presented itself to take hmm. advantage of it. And you know that's how luck happens. It's it's speaking to that person you find attractive and you see at you know the coffee shop every morning, or the person who's got the dog you think's adorable and stopping you know to, to pat the dog and striking up a conversation. There's so many ways in life that you know we can increase our luck. You know it's not you know it's good fortune that you're pat crossing paths, but the luck is really about taking action and and bu- building a bridge to that. Um, Kind of like the pot of gold you talked about. Yeah, is yeah. the pot of gold, is it a relationship? Is it a better job? Is it having a better relationship with your children? It's not good luck that any of these happen. It's taking advantage of opportunities that any of us can can realize. And, and that, that uh, little bit of luck by finding that one person that everyone thinks is the most incredible person for you, that also could shift. And um that job could turn bad or that right. relationship could have a major problem. And so this idea of luck, too, you need to be dynamic enough to handle when the conditions shift. Right. You, and that's that, that kind of that peripheral vision I was talking about. Yeah. It's, it's being aware of, you know, what's what's going on and not – if we assume that we don't have – you know, that, that everything we have will stay the same, it certainly is presumptive to think that we don't have to continue, you know, to work towards anything in life. Right. Um, and being settled and satisfied is one thing, but giving up and assuming that the world will take care of you is, is another altogether. So you've got to stay active. You've got to be aware, you know, if a climate is shifting on the job, be the person who's lucky enough to get out before the company folds. If, if a relationship is, if you feel like, you know, you're not being treated the way you should, be lucky enough, be the lucky person who addresses it or ends a relationship before any real damage is done. Oh, yeah. That's you great. Can, you got to make you you do have to make choices and you have to be aware of um the surroundings. Again, it's that peripheral vision, not assuming because you've got someone who um to to, to see every Saturday night is the person that's going to be there for you for 50 years. Mm-hmm. And 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 but the, the if you live all of these principles you're teaching, it might increase the likelihood. Yes, it could. Right? It very well could because you know, we kind of do draw to us, you know, what we put out. And if we go through life feeling self-confident and feeling that we make good choices, 
people who will be drawn to us are those who admire people who are self-confident. You know, like seeks like in that way. Yeah. That we want to be, we don't want to be with people who feel bad about themselves because that will bring us down. So making mm. sure you project that image of confident self-assurance and the belief that good things, you know, the Zig Ziglar, good things are going to happen to you today, and they will. Yeah. They just, they just will. Suzanne, you've got such a great spirit about you. Thank you. I'm proud of it. I mean, that's so cool because it's, I mean, you're an academic. Come on, Suzanne. (laughs) Where do you get all this good feeling stuff? But it's right and it feels good. You know, man, I must be very lucky. (laughs) You are so lucky. I have have a belief that you're creating a lot of all of this and then blessed from above. Suzanne's got some great uh, books as well. Toxic Friendships, Knowing the Rules and Dealing with Friends Who Break Them, as well as Friends Forever, Mothers and Daughters, just... All of these wonderful uh, different topics. Go look her up on Psychology Today, Suzanne Deggs-White. And uh, Suzanne, again, thank you for being with us. We'll have you back, I'm sure. Uh, Suzanne Deggs-White, good stuff. We're going to take a break and go visit our good buddies down at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we do have a couple of empty news stories that we haven't shared with you yet, one of which involves egging, which I thought was only a thing, you know, around Halloween, but here we go. An Oklahoma attorney has been charged with a misdemeanor crime for allegedly vandalizing cars parked in front of her parents' million-dollar home. On February 11th, an eyewitness called 911 when he saw a woman in a white shirt hurling raw eggs at parked cars. The suspect allegedly egged five cars that were legally parked in front of the home. According to local police, officers talked to several neighbors who confirmed the family who lives at the home has been involved in a long-standing showdown with City Hall over the parking along the street in front of their home. It is legal for cars to park on their side of the street. Police arrested 37-year-old Kelly Hensley for the crime. Hensley is an attorney who lives with her mom and dad. So you think she would know better? She's an attorney. Or maybe she's looked into it, at least, instead of just lashing out with eggs. Yeah. See, I... Does it frustrate you when people park in front of your house? Okay, um... Nobody does, though, because I live at the end of a cul-de-sac. Mm. But here's the thing. Do you get what, – what annoys you more, people parking in front of your home or homeowners that will, like, put out orange cones or trash cans so when there's, like, some big event going around, nobody can park there, even though they're fully within their right to do so? Neither. Neither. Just, just whatever. Do what <laughs> you want. It doesn't affect you. See, we have a, an event every – just the weekend before the 4th of July yeah. in our city. And there's a park by my house, and that's where everyone goes for this huge event and fireworks yeah. and everything. So our neighborhood is like the parking lot for the park. Yeah. Right? And there's people up and down every street, everywhere. And people do that. They'll put the garbage cans out with like some uh, construction tape or something, you know, the caution yeah. tape. Yeah. So they can kind of block that off because they have family coming over to watch the fireworks. Sure. Keep, you know, save parking spots and then that. But 
there are some people that just don't want people parking in front of their house. Yeah. And so they, they go through all that effort to block it off just so no one parks there. So I'm si- I, don't, yeah. I, don't, I don't necessarily like that because it's a city street. You can park yeah. wherever you want. See, I'm sympathetic to the family that's just trying to save spots for their family because yeah. that makes sense. Right. But yeah, just, just doing it so that nobody can park there, even though your cars aren't don't need to be parked there? What Why? I, I had someone like park right in front of our driveway. Uh-huh. And I walked out and went, okay, you can park anywhere, but I have to get out of my driveway. And the guy's like, oh, so he drove somewhere else. Um, I thought Sorry about, to inconvenience I thought you. about offering him he could park in my driveway 20 bucks. Oh, yeah. Make some, make, make some quick cash there just by offering a parking spot. I often think about- you get to about, the end and people are just driving up and down the streets trying to yeah. find a place and there is no place. I always want to do that when it's a busy day here on campus and yeah. people are looking for a parking spot. <laughs> But uh, no, I just don't do it. Yeah, some people get mad when someone just parks in front of their house. I don't no get reason, it. You know, and I'm like, well, it's a city street. They yeah. just pulled over. You know, we have two cars. We park them both in the garage. We never need the parking on the yeah. street. But uh, I'm I only, all, yeah. yeah, I'm always afraid someone's going to run into me if I leave my car out there. Hmm. It's kind of, I think, an irrational fear. But you know, I've seen it happen. So, well. Hopefully uh, yeah, but, but she this, studies that part of the law. She's a lawyer, and she decides the best case is to go out and start throwing eggs at the cars. Not wise. Not wise. Not a very good lawyer, it sounds like. Here's uh, one more MT News story for you. The owner of a local convenience store is charged with vandalizing several cars parked in front of his business. Yogesh Patel, 36, owner of the convenience store, called authorities and reported multiple cars parked illegally in front of his store, according to police. Police arrived to find 10 cars in the parking lot that had one or more tires deflated. Mm. Upon further investigation, officers determined that Patel and a store employee called police to report the illegally parked cars, then walked outside and drilled holes in more than 20 tires. So you can't do that. No. You can't do that. Well, also, you, you alert the police, and then you go out and vandalize the cars so that when the police show up, then now the, now the question is, how did the vandalism happen? How ironic like, uh, is it that they used the the store owner's video surveillance against him? Yeah. You know? Usually that's to help him. Again, we're not uh, we're not thinking through the act of what's right. happening. You have a maybe go unplug your surveillance camera yeah. and then choose one course of action. Call the police. Or do the vandalism. What, or not, why that just... we're, not that we're promoting anything that we just talked about yeah. in either of these stories. <laughs> but, I mean, there's a process here where you're yeah. not, not basically putting yourself in jail. Or why wouldn't they just call the towing company? That too. If it is truly illegal, it probably wasn't. He's probably you know, just annoyed that they park there. I guarantee you a towing company is going to get there so much faster than the police. Because right. the police have more important things to handle than uh, somebody that may or may not be parked and the tow- illegally and the towing company needs the money so oh yeah they'll come help yeah. they'll be there within seconds i mean towing companies a lot of them seem it seems like they're just circling around the neighborhood just waiting for somebody to be parked illegally hmm. at least that's the way it seemed when i was in college and two in the morning your car is getting towed right but oh. to each his own but again in both of these cases don't egg the car and don't drill the tires i mean you could just get a knife. He's got a convenience store. He's got to have some tool somewhere, but he grabbed a, dr- a drill somehow yeah. and went out there. Or just do what everybody else does and, like, you know, give the tire a little kick. Yeah. Maybe the car alarm will go off and that will alert the owner that they shouldn't be parking there. Possibly. Wow. We just gave him, like, five different ideas. Yeah. We're, we're really good. Now, we don't we don't act actively commit crimes here. No. 
But Not actively. I think we all have a pretty good idea, and I think it's because we've watched enough TV that we kind of have an idea how to do this. Yeah, and we've been reporting on so many of these crime stories that I think, you know, we now have a firm grasp on what is good and what is bad and what is legal and what is illegal. Right, and then how to kind of navigate those waters when you're trying to achieve certain things. What we're really trying to say is, We have the criminals to thank for us being upstanding citizens. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, as you know, we like to end each show with a hero story of the day. And uh, today is we've got another great one for you. A Cub Scout saves his uh, mom's life. An eight-year-old boy is off the hook for Mother's Day this year after he saved his mom's life just one month after his father died in a tragic car accident. Michael O'Brien Jr., a Cub Scout, was on the couch with his mom when she started choking on a muffin. I kind of panicked. I just didn't really show it, he told the news outlet. I'm like trying to keep a non-scared face. I don't want her to panic more. That might affect it. I picked up the phone and dialed it and then talked to the dispatcher until they got here. O'Brien said the task was especially difficult because of the recent death of his dad. It's hard for me to keep myself calm, he said. So when that happened and my mom was choking, it was really hard. I wouldn't know what to do if she, you know, I I wouldn't know where to go. I wouldn't know. O'Brien's mom, Marie Hunt, said that her son instructed her not to eat anything for the rest of the year after she dropped him off at school. I can't lose her. I already lost my dad, Michael said. Wow. And you know what? He probably learned what to do at Cub Scouts. Interesting. What What a hero he is. And, uh, man, it's really sad because you think what would have happened if had he lost his mom, he wouldn't have either one of his parents. So, Michael, you are our hero of the day. Great work. And, uh, yeah, it really makes you want to continue on with the Cub Scout work and earning those merit badges. And who knows, maybe he'll save some more lives. That's going to do it for the show today. Join us tomorrow when we have uh, more fun stories, more topics to help you live more important and more healthy lives here on The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back tomorrow.